welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a bi-weekly show that's released every other Friday, and this is episode 32. On Horror Movie Podcast, you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases, with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City. And right now, I am currently solo casting, but I will be joined in just a little while by Dr. Shock. Wolfman Josh is currently in Las Vegas, and I am jealous. I love that town. So unfortunately, the Wolfman will not be on this episode. I'm sorry to report that. Okay, if this is your first time listening to Horror Movie Podcast, we have two kinds of episodes. First, we do themed episodes where we discuss a certain horror theme in depth while reviewing a few films that illustrate or pertain to that particular theme. But that's not what we're doing tonight in episode 32. What we're doing tonight is the second kind of episode, which is kind of a hodgepodge of horror miscellaneous, which we like to call our Frankensteinian episodes, because we just record these various segments at different times and then sew them together. And it leads to some very weird transitions, but it also yields a ton of mini reviews for all sorts of horror films, old and new. So I'm going to let you know what to expect for episode 32 here specifically. We had intended to cover a number of uh, new features, and there were some films that I had promised to cover for this episode. And as usual, I've made a liar out of myself. I apologize. So for next time in episode 33, we are totally planning on getting to our reviews of Exists, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, as well as Extraterrestrial. And then some of the other things that I had been promising was Rigor Mortis, The Jungle, The Tunnel Movie, a film called Were, which uh, Wolfman Josh had an idea for that one. So that might be a couple weeks out, actually. And then I also wanted to talk about the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre commentaries. They have two new commentaries on the 40th anniversary edition. It's going to review those for you. So I'm aiming to do all of that and more in episode 33. So that's what we're covering next time. But let's talk about what we're covering now. The first thing is I'm going to get into a feature review of Annabelle, as well as a couple other little tidbits here. But I am not the main event. For the main event of this episode, Dr. Shock has assembled a top 10 list with a five bonus honorable mention list, so 15 in total, of the best horror flicks that he saw during his 31 Days of October movie reviews for horror films that were from the 2000s to present. And I've actually already recorded that segment with him last night, and it's about two and a half hours long, so pretty epic and we've also got some great voicemails and listener feedback to talk about. And I've got something unusual for this episode only. It's going to take a little context. I'll try to be brief here. So back in the Horror Palace Network days, there was a podcast called Zombie Reckoning, hosted by Ron Martin and Jeff Hammer. You might have guessed it was a zombie podcast. And from time to time, they invited me, Jay of the Dead, to record a solo cast mini review of a zombie flick, usually lesser known stuff, for this show, which I love to do. I only ended up recording like four of these reviews, but they were fun. I think I called them Blue Moon Zombie Reviews because I only recorded them every once in a while. But anyway, 
That show is no longer in existence anywhere that I know of, and now Ron Martin solely produces the Resurrection of Zombie 7 podcast to this day. But I figured that since the Zombie Reckoning podcast no longer exists anywhere, then maybe I could just sprinkle in those four reviews I did here in episode 32 as kind of a bonus cachet of many reviews on four lesser-known zombie flicks for you. The editing transitions on these little zombie reviews are going to be pretty bumpy, I'll tell you that right now, because they were recorded for another show and I'm repurposing them here, but... I'll just sprinkle those in in random spots throughout this episode, and when you hear them, it's going to be a train wreck, but maybe you'll get a good zombie flick out of it. So without any further delay, let's jump into my feature review of Annabelle. John, wake up. What? Next door, I heard a scream. Stay here. I'm going to check it out. John? Is everything all right? Oh my God, you're covered in blood. Go back inside. It's not mine. It's not. Go back inside. Call the ambulance right now. Go! Okay, now we have a sister show called Movie Podcast Weekly where we cover new releases in theaters every Tuesday. And sometimes we cover the latest horror flick out there. Now, we do have some crossover listeners who support both podcasts. So for you faithful ones out there, I always try to reserve some special little tidbits for just the horror movie podcast audience only when it comes to these horror reviews. So if you've heard me review Annabelle already on episode 109 of MPW, then I apologize for some overlap, but stay tuned because I'm actually going to go a little more in-depth for the horror fans. First of all, though, let me bring you guys some context for this film by providing a little bit of history here. Last year, during the summer of 2013, Director James Wan brought us a pretty decent horror flick called The Conjuring. Now, The Conjuring was based on real-life paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren, who are perhaps the most well-known experts, quote-unquote, on the subject. And The Conjuring was about their investigation of some evil presence that was terrifying this family in this old farmhouse. And like many movies, The Conjuring opens with a sequence that establishes the competence and the credibility of our main characters. And in this case, it was one of the best parts of the movie. The Conjuring opens with a short sequence about the Warrens' encounter with Annabelle, this doll that seemed to be haunted. And it was a freaky little part of that movie, and obviously it was pretty popular because they decided they should make a spin-off prequel, that's what I'm calling it, It's a spinoff prequel to The Conjuring, and it is Annabelle. So this movie, Annabelle, shows us kind of the beginnings of the doll before the Warrens got to her. Now, before I go into this review, I also wanted to briefly talk about the history behind the real-life doll, Annabelle, because she is based off of an actual doll, and this is very unsettling. I think most people already know about this, but... The real doll, Annabelle, doesn't have the same freaky appearance as the doll in this movie. She's actually just a regular old Raggedy Ann doll, kind of a big one, almost like the Chucky-sized doll, (laughs) Raggedy Ann doll. That's funny, right? There are many places that you can find out more about the real Annabelle story, but just for the sake of providing some context for this show, 
I turned to one of my favorite film critics, Devin Faraci, who writes for BadassDigest.com. And he wrote up this article last July after The Conjuring came out, and it was titled, The True Story of Annabelle, the Haunted Doll from The Conjuring. And Devin is actually a pretty good researcher. I've followed some of his other stories, and he digs up some good stuff. So I feel like he's trustworthy, and he cited his source for this article as the New England Society for Paranormal Research. And I'll read a good bit of Devin's article here, and I'm going to link it in the show notes in case you want to go read it all. But here are some highlights that I think you should know. This is very creepy. Donna got Annabelle from her mother in 1970. The mom bought the used doll at a hobby store, and Donna was a college student at the time and living with a roommate named Angie, and at first neither thought the doll was anything special. But over time, they noticed Annabelle seemed to move on her own. At first, it was really subtle, just changes in position, the kinds of things that could be written off as the doll being jostled. But the movement increased, and within a few weeks, it seemed to become fully mobile. The girls would leave the apartment with Annabelle on Donna's bed and return home to find it on the couch. Their friend Lou hated the doll. He thought there was something deeply wrong with it, something evil. Soon Annabelle's actions got even weirder. Donna began to find pieces of parchment paper in the house with messages written on it, like help us, they would say, or help Lou. And just to make the whole thing that much creepier, nobody in the house owned parchment paper. So one night Donna returned home to find Annabelle in her bed with blood on her hands. The blood, or some sort of red liquid, seemed to be coming from the doll itself. That was enough. Donna finally agreed to bring in a medium. The sensitive sat with the doll and told the girls that long before their apartment complex had been built, there had been a field on that property. A seven-year-old girl named Annabelle Higgins had been found dead in that field. Her spirit remained, and when the doll came into the house, the girl latched onto it. She found Donna and Angie to be trustworthy, and she just wanted to stay with them. She wanted to be safe with them. Being sweet, nurturing types, they were both nursing students, and Donna and Angie agreed to let Annabelle stay with them. Lou started having bad dreams, dreams where Annabelle was in his bed climbing up his leg as he lay frozen, sliding up his chest to his neck and closing her stuffed hands around his throat, choking him out. He would wake up from his dream terrified, head pounding like all the blood had been cut off to his brain. A few days later, they heard someone moving around in Donna's room. Everything was as it should be, except Annabelle was off the bed and sitting in a corner. As he approached the doll, Lou was consumed with that feeling, a burning on the back of the neck that indicates someone was staring at you as he spun around. Nobody was there, the room was empty, and then sudden pain on his chest. He looked in his shirt and saw a series of raking claw marks, rough ditches in his flesh that burned. He knew Annabelle had done it. So they turned to an Episcopalian priest, who in turn called Ed and Lorraine Warren, It didn't take the Warrens long to come to their conclusion. There was no ghost in this case. There was an inhuman spirit, a demon, attached to the doll. But they warned that the doll was not possessed. Demons don't possess things, only people. It was clinging to the doll, manipulating it in order to give the impression of a haunting. The target was really Donna's soul. A priest performed an exorcism on the apartment, and the Warrens took possession of the doll. They put it in a bag and began the long drive home. 
As they drove on the back roads, the engine kept cutting out, and the power steering kept failing, and even the brakes gave them trouble. Ed opened the bag, sprinkled the doll with holy water, and the disturbances stopped for the moment. Ed left the doll next to his desk. It began levitating. That happened a couple of times, and then it seemed to just quit, finally laying quiet. But in a couple of weeks, Annabelle was back to her old tricks. She started appearing in different rooms in the Warren home. Sensing that the doll was ramping back up, the Warrens called in a Catholic priest to exorcise Annabelle. The priest didn't take it seriously, telling Annabelle, You're just a doll. You can't hurt anyone. Big mistake. On his way home, the priest's brakes failed and his car was totaled in a horrible accident. He survived. Eventually, the Warrens built a locked case for Annabelle, and she resides there to this day. The locked case seems to have kept the doll from moving around, but it seems like whatever terrible entity is attached to it is still there, waiting. And once again, that article is written by Devin Faraci of BadassDigest.com, and I'll have it linked in the show notes in case you want to check that out. So now you have the very creepy context for this film. And now that you have that, let's talk about the movie itself. So first of all, if you haven't seen the trailers yet, do not watch them. I was very careful about what I included in the audio version for this podcast, but the first trailer for this movie looked very dull, just so boring, and I was unimpressed. And then the second trailer looks very scary, but unfortunately, as with many horror trailers, it gives away the best scares. And this film doesn't have tons of scares, just so you know that. So you don't want to be ruined on these because they are uh, pretty good. This film was directed by John R. Leonetti and written by Gary Doberman. And actually, this John R. Leonetti, the director of this film, he was actually the cinematographer for Child's Play 3 from 1992, which, of course, is about the killer doll named Chucky. And the premise is it's about a couple that begins to experience supernatural occurrences involving a vintage doll shortly after their home is invaded by cultists. Okay, now, I guess the first thing I'd want you to know about this film is uh, it's a weird mixture of two things. On one hand, it's pretty tame because it doesn't have a ton of scares in it. I would classify it as a drama horror film. I mean, it is full-blown horror, but it's a drama first, horror film second. This is a very story-based, very character-based type of movie. It's very atmospheric. It's very well made. And so if you're looking for a film that gives you a mood or a feeling, then it is good for that. So on the one hand, like I said, it is pretty tame because it doesn't have a ton of scares in it. But there are a couple of very creepy moments. And um, maybe I'll get to those in a minute without giving any spoilers. So don't worry. But the other thing I want you to know about this movie is on the other hand, it can be pretty hardcore at times because... It's about an expectant couple, this young couple is having their first baby, and the evil in this movie, the evil entity, really targets this new baby. <laughs> and, you know, in a horror movie, that's pretty hardcore. I mean, that's pretty serious. You know you've got a serious horror movie when the dog dies, right? Or when it targets the kid aggressively, and this is pretty aggressive. So I just want people to know that there is a scene of violence involving the expectant mother, which is um, just pretty hardcore. 
pretty full-blown. It was pretty shocking. So just so you know, that's coming. Now, as far as performances, there are actually a lot of really good performances in this movie. And when I say a lot, I'm talking about the main characters. Ironically, so the lead character, our protagonist really, the hero, is this mother, this young mother. Her character name is Mia. But her real name, the actress's real name, coincidentally, is Annabelle. Annabelle Wallace. She's beautiful. She's just incredible to look at on the screen. The camera loves her, as they say. But I just thought it was hilarious that her real name is Annabelle. And I just wondered that if maybe that was part of the reason, (laughs) if they just felt it was destiny to choose her for the casting in this. And the husband character is played by Ward Horton, who's a pretty good actor, pretty straightforward, and uh, I like his performance. And this also has Alfre Woodard in it, which is um, this actress who's really talented, actually. She's been in a variety of good things. But just the mere fact that she is in this film just kind of lends some extra weight to the movie. And her performance is great, of course. And I like how her character is a little bit ambiguous. It's kind of hard to tell where she's coming from, and I think that's very cool. I will say that Annabelle uh, defies expectations, which is really good. And as far as like the filmmaking, this is a very well-made horror film. Like this has just tremendously good horror lighting. It reminds me, I mean, I haven't seen lighting this good since that film Sinister. Sinister is just like a masterclass in horror lighting because it is common for horror movies to have kind of a darker, more subdued lighting. And in parts of the frame that you're looking at, it's like the corners sometimes are just totally, just absolutely a blanket of blackness. And Sinister was just phenomenal for that aspect. And this film does really well too. So, you know, I give a lot of props to that. And, you know, you can tell that the director here has an eye for cinematography. It makes sense that he was a DP in his previous life, so to speak. My biggest complaint with this probably, I mean, I wish it did have more scares in it. I wish it had some more horror elements. I mean, I think it is a great moody little horror flick, but it could definitely use some more scares. And there is a priest in this film And it's not that the actor is bad or anything, but the conflicts or the confrontations that occur with the priest are not very well done. I will say that something I really admire about this movie that I was worried about is I like the fact that they don't really animate Annabelle. It's not like this little doll starts attacking people. Now, that doesn't mean I'm down on Child's Play or down on Chucky, because that's kind of its own animal, and it's very different from this. I mean, there's something fantastical about the Child's Play franchise, whereas this film here in The Conjuring, especially since they're based on real-life doll, they really have that tone of being set in reality, and I appreciate that, because Once you have a doll being animated and attacking somebody, there's something lost there in translation, at least for me in terms of like the verisimilitude and how much I could potentially buy that this is actually happening, you know? So that's something I really love. And we do get, I won't go much into this, I'll just say we do get a glimpse of the quote-unquote monster in this movie And I dig the look of the monster. I wish we um, had more of that, but I guess, you know, it's kind of good that it's sparing too. I guess it left me wanting more. And just a little trivia here before I go into ratings. I read on IMDb that 
There is a 1963 episode of The Twilight Zone. Now, by the way, that's prior to the real-life Annabelle stuff, so this is a weird Twilight Zone type of coincidence. But in that 1963 episode of The Twilight Zone, it's called Living Doll, and it involves a talking doll that's given to a young girl by her mother. And this doll's innocent vocabulary soon takes a sinister tone, especially toward the girl's cruel stepfather. And the girl's mother in this episode is named Annabelle. Anyway, now that you're sufficiently freaked out, at least I am, (laughs) I just gotta say, I think this is a pretty good horror film. Only if it had more scares to it, more horror elements, I think it could be like up around a 10, honestly. But um, I needed a lot more than it gave. The parts that it did give, though, I will say, were um, pretty effective. So for me, this is a 6.5 out of 10. That's a strong, solid, good horror film choice. And I say see it in the theater while it's still in theaters. And then once it's out of theaters, if you hear this review later, that's definitely a rental. You, You can't go wrong. I mean, it's pretty creepy. And so I'd say check out Annabelle from 2014. Now, we're going to be covering a lot of the new stuff that we've missed. It seems like we're behind and we're slacking, but the Halloween stuff put us behind. We're going to be covering a lot of that in the next episode, episode 33. But in the meantime, there are a couple I want to comment on just to give you the skinny on these titles. There's a film that came out, I believe it was on Halloween or right before Halloween. It was called Ouija, right? It's a Ouija board movie. And I could have seen it on Halloween Day in October here, but I opted to see Nightcrawler instead. And by the way, side note, I'm glad I did. Nightcrawler is great. Not a horror movie, but creepy indeed and worth your time. Anyway, everything about Ouija looks terrible to me. So even if the trailer, which usually shows the best parts, right? Even if that can't reel me in, I figured that I'm going to wait and just rent that thing through Redbox. That looks like Redbox horror to me. And so I'm sorry. I feel like there is a degree to which I'm letting the listeners down by not covering it because that's kind of my job, right? To tell you what's worth seeing. But I'm predicting right now. I mean, I will have an open mind when I see it at Redbox. But I'm predicting right now that that thing is not going to be good. So I'm just going to wait, but I will bring you a review of that later on. If anybody out there has seen Ouija, if you gave it a whirl, which you probably did, let us know in the show notes for episode 32 here. I'd be interested in hearing your take on it and make sure you give the rating too. We love it. The other film that I was going to be covering in this episode was Horns, okay? This one seemed to have the horror community pretty excited, at least some of the horror community. I Some of my friends who are horror fans were really looking forward to it. And that's the one starring Daniel Radcliffe, of course. It's um, directed by Alexandra Aja, whom I love. He's tremendous. And so, I mean, why wouldn't you think it's a horror film, right? Well, I'll tell you this. Josh heard that it wasn't horror, and that is exactly correct. I'm going to give you a feature review of that coming up on this upcoming Tuesday in episode 111 of Movie Podcast Weekly because it fits better over there. It is not a horror movie. I'll tell you right now, Horns is a drama first, a murder mystery second, a crime movie third, and a fantasy fourth. And I'm serious. I know. I know, right? It doesn't have the tone of a horror film. 
It has one split-second frightening image, and it's so fast you can barely even perceive it. It does have some gore at the end, what could be classified as um, some decent gore, just a quick moment of that. And it does have something that you would call a monster, but not a scary one, completely sympathetic, and it doesn't even register as having horror elements. Anyway, I'm not dogging on the film. You can hear my full review on Movie Podcast Weekly, but I'm just telling you why we're not covering it here, because it is definitely not a horror. You'd call Horns a love story way before you'd call it a horror film. So join us on episode 111 of Movie Podcast Weekly if you want to hear more about Horns. For this episode's Intermission of the Dead, I want to tell you about a noteworthy zombie flick from 2009 called Blood Creek. It was directed by none other than Joel Schumacher. And in case you don't know who that is, Joel Schumacher directed movies like Batman and Robin, The Number 23, Phone Booth, 8mm, Flatliners, and The Lost Boys, just to name a few. So you can see that he's been all over the place with his hits and misses in his career. But Blood Creek is actually one of the films that he got right. In fact, I'd call it one of his best. Now here's the premise, and I will not reveal any spoilers. It's set in my home state of West Virginia. Blood Creek is about a family of German immigrant farmers whose property contains this large stone that's inscribed with ancient instructions that can lead its readers to achieve immortality. And we learn from the intro of the movie that back in the 30s, Adolf Hitler was interested in the occult, and he believed that it could help him achieve world domination. So he dispatched a man to this farm in West Virginia so that this guy could study the writings on the stone and try to wield its secrets of immortality. Flash forward to present day, 70-some years later, where lots of ugly and unnatural events have taken place on this farm over the decades, So when one of the tortured captives escapes this farm, he actually returns again to try to get revenge. That's basically the premise. And obviously, the power that's unleashed is prolonged life and the raising of the dead. So for you purists out there, there are definitely living dead in this movie, which is to say reanimated corpses. Though they are fast reanimated corpses. But the main monster is something a little different from a zombie. I'd actually call him, he's a little bit closer to a vampire, but I think you could safely classify this as a vampiric zombie flick. Anyway, this main monster is the main attraction to the movie. He's easily the best part, but I don't want to describe him very much because part of the reason that Blood Creek is entertaining is getting to discover what this monster is all about and who he is. And so... Blood Creek begins in black and white, or maybe it's sepia, but anyway, it's about the first 10 minutes of the movie, and it also has a few subtitles because the characters speak German. But don't worry, that's just a short backstory introduction, and like I said, it's set back in the 30s, and I think they used the sepia to make it look old. But almost the entire movie is set in modern day, it's in color, and the characters speak English. So don't turn the movie off and start cursing Jay of the Dead, because I'm going to give you a couple of good reasons to watch Blood Creek. Number one, everybody who sees this movie talks about the same thing. There's this ferocious zombie horse in this movie, and it's crazy. And there's also a zombie dog, as well as human zombies, of course. Number two, Blood Creek has considerable blood and gore. Its creature effects and zombie effects look pretty good. And the CGI effects are mostly good, except for a couple of rough spots. 
And number three, for those who are like Dr. Walking Dead and me, like critics who like to consider film subtext, there's also some intriguing themes surrounding utilitarianism and whether the suffering of a few justifies the greater good of the many. So anyway, for ratings, for Blood Creek, I'm coming in at a 6.5 out of 10, and I'm telling you to rent it. But the reason I can't go any higher is because, number one, this is essentially a siege narrative or a hold-up movie where the characters are hiding inside from a monster who's trying to get to them from the outside. Even though this film has that setup, it doesn't execute it very well at all, and that disappointed me. Number two, the other aspect that took Blood Creek down a few points is the dialogue problems. In the beginning, you have these two brothers who have tons of time to talk as they journey to the farm. They get all this time to communicate, and the one brother's totally kept in the dark. The other guy doesn't catch him up at all. And so, since he's in the dark, we're in the dark. And then out of the clear blue, they go into this huge exposition. It's convoluted and complicated, and they talk about all these crazy details. You know what I'm talking about, where the details of the story are overly complicated and they try to cram it into one spot in the movie and it's it's very distracting and it actually um, destroys the pacing so again 6.5 rent it and that's about it for this episode's intermission of the dead so on behalf of zombie reckoning podcast this is jay of the dead signing off okay at this point in episode 32 i am joined by the madman himself dr shock my good friend thanks for being here dave not a problem. Glad I'm, um, as always, glad to be here. <laughs> okay, so for last month here, for October, you did something very cool on your blog. Well, DVDinfatuation.com is always cool, but in order to celebrate Halloween, you did something special, and we're actually going to reap the benefits here on this episode from what you did. So could you explain to the listeners just what you did last month and what you're going to do tonight for us? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, well, what I did for the month of October uh, was I took a look at uh, horror films, obviously, um, which which a lot of people are doing. But I was looking at one specifically made after the year 2000. I just had a whole list of these movies that I always wanted to, to get to. And I know I want to get to for the blog. And as I was looking them over you know, a couple months ago, I said, hey, you know, maybe I'll just make it a um, almost, you know, I'll, I'll just plan to do these for October for all of these sort of more recent horror movies that I've wanted to catch up on or that I've wanted to, to, you know, cover. Uh, so I, you know, put, put together, a, a sort of a, 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 an outline of a list of these movies that I've wanted to see, um, that I've heard things about and that I just, you know, some of them I'd never got a chance to see before. Some of them I had seen, but wanted to cover. Um, you know, specifically for the blog. And um, that's what I did. I came up with uh, with uh, 31 of those and uh, figured what I could do, you know, for, for the show, just to go over it, because I know not, not too many people. Some people uh, came out to the blog. I know uh, some of the listeners, uh, you know, were leaving <laughs> comments over there, especially uh, David and Juan. Yeah. were uh, always great. They're awesome. You know. And and I visited. I I watched the blog during October as well. Okay. Great. It's good. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um so what I'm going to do is just go over some of the movies that I think are worth discussing. I mean, these are ones that I think are worth recommending and I came up with almost like a top 10 list of the movies that I watched during that period, you know, during uh during the last October. And I do have a few even honorable mentions to go over as well. Uh, that we can 
touch on here, and I don't know how many of them you've seen, Jay, if any. Yeah, I'm guessing. I know that I know that there's at least one on this list that you have seen because I know you've talked about it before. You were actually the reason I threw it on here, and I wanted to check it out. Oh, nice. Yeah, I've seen a few of these, and um, okay, but but not as many as I would have liked. I mean, I was I was kind of excited to get this list myself, which is a big reason why I think the listeners will like it because some of these are lesser known, right? I mean, yeah, some of them, I think people are going to, I think there's, you know, there's going to be listeners out there who have seen some of these. Um, but I think there's going to be a few in here that see, I hadn't even, I hadn't heard of them. I sort of stumbled on them by accident and just always wanted to to check them out. You know, I'd seen them or heard about them a year or two ago and I'd pick up the DVD. You know, a lot of these are, or lower budget horror films, and um, it's a site. That, yeah, there's a store out there, Go Hastings. I think some people know about it, GoHastings.com, where they sell used uh, DVDs and Blu-rays. And when it comes to some of these lower budget horror ones, you could pick those things up out there for like a dollar ninety-nine. Uh, you know, and 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 the shipping is fairly reasonable. So I had been doing that for the better part of a year, a couple of years ago. You know, just picking up these movies, and <laughs> it was during that time frame that I picked up a good a good number of these. Not all of them, you know, because there's, there's a few of them on here. They're not all the low budget uh, films, but a good number of them are. Yeah, and in fact, I as you get to them, I think I know some of the places where these came from um, on your list. I think so. I'll, oh, okay. I'll mention it when we get there, and I. <clears throat> It'll, it's kind of amusing to me because I'm like, oh, yeah, I bet we learned about that at the same time. Cause, it, it's very possible. Because <laughs> I wrote them down, too. But boy, we're big teasers, aren't we? Listen to yeah, this really. teasing we're giving. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, we'll, we'll start off here um, with the honorable mentions. Thank you. Now, one movie that I came across sort of by accident is a film called 100 Feet. Now, this came out in 2008. Okay, uh, it stars uh, Famke Jansen, uh, Bobby Cannavale, who actually just got, uh, it was in the third season of Boardwalk Empire. I don't know if anybody out there watches that show regularly, but he played a great role. And I mean, he was a real, a real he was almost the villain of the entire uh, series, that entire uh, season, I should say. Uh, and he's sort of making a comeback. But anyway, he plays a detective in this movie. Uh, what it's about, uh, it's 100 feet. What it's about, um, it's about this woman, played by Famke Jansen. Uh, she'd been in prison for for killing her abusive husband, uh, who was also a policeman. Uh, now, her name is Marnie. And what happens is uh, she's just gotten out of prison, but she has to spend the next 12 months under house arrest. Uh, she's going back to the house where she killed him. I mean, when she walks in the front door, there's a blood stain on the wall. Wow. That nobody even bothered to, you know, to, to clean up. <laughs> That's unfortunate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, anyway, you know, as, as they do, they attach the tracking device to her leg. She's restricted to a sort of 100-foot radius. And if she moves beyond that point, she has like three or four minutes to get back or else they're going to come drag her back to jail. Um, you know, she, she does her best to try to get on with a normal life. But she finds out uh, she's not alone in the house. The ghost of her husband, Mike, who's actually played by Michael Pere, uh, and he's, that's the only role he plays in this movie, um, is, is also is living there with her. And um, he's not too happy that she killed him. Right. <laughs> um, and basically what happens is 
the abuse picks up where it left off. Just she has no idea where it's when it's coming or, um, you know, she 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 does turn to now Bobby Cannavale. What it is is Bobby Cannavale is the one who drops her off there, and he's being real. You know, the, opens the movie up. You don't know the characters yet. He's being real abrasive towards her. Yeah. You know, he's just not treating her very well, treating her very nicely. You think it's like the cop prisoner thing? Turns out that her husband was his partner. So he's got this added sort of – and the two – like him and his wife and Famke Jansen and, and her husband would get together on weekends. They were very close. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have this this whole dynamic going on there. So she does turn to him, tries to get him to help, to understand. There's also this this kid named Joey. He's a delivery boy for the local supermarket, and the two of them are sort of uh, – Marnie, who's um, Famke Jansen's character, they sort of kicked up a um, relationship, which he's trying to find some sort of relief from what's going on there. Now, one of the things I liked most about this movie was Famke Jansen's her performance. I mean, of course, you know, she is so good in this and she's still continuing to suffer. She was an abused wife who's continuing to suffer. But what makes it so good is that um, the way she, the way she approaches it, she's not ready to be a victim again. She's, she tries fighting back. She'll, she'll scream at the spirit. You know, um, and she's not going to she says she basically says, I'm not going to let myself be a victim again here. And she tries to fight back um, like she'll curse at him. She'll, you know, she after she's attacked in the kitchen at one point, she, she starts, yelling, you know, you had it coming, you know, talking about like, killing him um, and says it's his own fault that he's dead. So really from start to finish, it, it, she's the one – she's a very strong character and very engaging, and you definitely want to see what's going on. And it is, a lot, in a lot of ways, a one-woman show. Well, what I love about this premise, Doc, just to jump in, I haven't seen it, but I'm very intrigued here. I'm excited you brought this to my attention because I think it's interesting that – you know, in a real life situation like this, a person probably would suffer some kind of post-traumatic stress disorder from being abused all that mm-hmm. time and probably would still be haunted in a sense from it. So I love how it's kind of literal in this horror film. That seems it, like a very cool premise. It makes it it's a cool premise. And also you always get the people who say, hey, if it's a haunted house, get out of there. She can't. Yeah. She's she's stuck there. She's got this device that will not permit her That's to leave the house. So she she's <laughs> cannot go anywhere. Brilliant. Yeah. So the, they have that mixed in, and plus that there are illusions. She gets a call at one point from um, one of her fellow, uh, a friend of hers she had met uh, who was still in prison. Um, and there's uh, there are some illusions that that she's had it tough in prison too, but that might be where she got this this edge to her because the 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 girl she's talking to said yeah these two people are still down in solitaire for what they did to you so you get the idea that that she sort of learned this this streetwise um or at least this this side of her personality that makes her a fighter she picked that up for during her two years in prison as well you know so it was like she struck back against her husband and then she got even got even stronger from the experience after that um, now, some of the horror elements are a little hit and miss. Okay, there are effective shocks. When we first see Mike, when we first see her husband, when he first makes himself, his presence known, that works big time. Okay, That's, that, is a, that, is a, that is a jump scare, and it takes it beyond that, um, and it's a very effective scene. 
Nice. Um, with, there are a few cheap jump scares as well. My favorite, as always, the screeching cat. <laughs> Once again, makes an appearance in this movie. Um, one of the problems that I had with, with the film, though, is that, well, as I said, Michael Perret plays the husband, and you, he basically plays the ghost. And, you know, there's when he shows up sometimes, um, it, it almost looks a little gimmicky. You know, where he'll be like walking down a hall or, or something, you know, or like slowly approaching her. Sometimes you don't see him at all. She's just dragged down the hallway with, you don't see the spirit. He's just, he's boom, drags her down the hallway. Other times he's there. And it can get a little gimmicky with, with him appearing the way he does. Okay. It works sometimes. Sometimes it works really well. Sometimes you're just like, okay, they might be showing him a little too much, you know, in this, in this chunk of time here. Um, anyway, regardless, it's a movie I would recommend, um, you know, cause I think Famke Jansen really is good in this. And I think her performance alone makes it worth seeking out. And Wolfman Josh is in love with her, by the way. Oh, really? Oh yeah. yeah. He, he's got the hots for her big time. Oh. So yeah, he, well, I can understand why <laughs> <laughs> he would want to see this movie. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, th- that's, this is, this is one that, um, yeah, that he would definitely, uh, you know, be worth checking out for him. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so I'm recommending it for, for that most. Like I said, and, and the horror, it's, it's there. Uh, it is in a lot of ways a piece about Famke Jansen's character, but the horror elements are there. Uh, and there are some um, very effective scenes, but just be ready that they're not all effective. Okay. It, it doesn't work throughout the entire film. Right. Okay. I'd give it a seven. Okay. I'd give it a seven. If, if you took Famke Jansen out of it, it might be more of a five as a horror movie, but I'd give two points strictly for, for her performance. And she is the bulk of the movie. And that's, it really is. She's the one who's it's, it's a one woman show for a lot of uh, the running time. And it's such a good performance that you don't mind that you're engaged the whole time. You tell people to rent that or just, um... Oh, I would say, yes, this is one I'd, I'd, I'd say would be a rental. Okay, cool. I'd say this one would be a rental. Okay. The next thing I wanted to take a look at, uh, are two films together, <laughs> uh, both with the same theme, uh, the same basic premise. Uh, and it is uh, both from the same year. I want to say they're both from 2007. You're right. One second. Okay. You know which one I'm talking about Oh, here. yes, I do. Okay. We have Rogue mm-hmm. and Blackwater. Yes. Okay. Our first one is Blackwater. Oh, and something else. They're both from Australia. Both cool. movies were, made, were shot in Australia. Yeah, because and crocodiles are a real horror down under. Absolutely, right? absolutely. I mean, <laughs> yes. one of the the movie Lake Placid, and this is what I, I mentioned this in the in the in the um, uh, review for uh, Blackwater on the blog. Mm-hmm. There's a scene that I always remembered in Lake Placid. Lake Placid is, is a movie that I kind of have a love hate relationship with. <laughs> I really do like the scenes with the crocodile. Yeah, I think they're awesome. But I really dislike the characters. I understand in that yeah. movie. I mean, there's a couple that you could sort of deal with, but like Oliver Platt and and um, uh, Bridget Fonda, they're so dislikable. You, you you just can't get behind these characters. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, they just annoy you from the from the word go. Yes. Um, but as far as the alligator goes, I really like it. Of course, Betty White has a very memorable role in that movie. Anybody who knows anything about Betty White, it's sort of a, 
a definite stretch from what she normally does, what she, the, the characters she plays in Lake Placid, but even she's annoying. Uh, but anyway, there's a scene in Lake Placid, uh, one of the quieter scenes where, where Oliver Platt is sitting there with Brendan Gleeson, who plays the sheriff, and they're looking at an online video of a crocodile. And you see him sneaking up on his prey, you know, this animal sort of drinking by the river. And all of a sudden, boom, he leaps out, he grabs that thing, and he drags it underwater. Mm-hmm. Well, to me, that's the most frightening thing about a crocodile is yes. they're there looking at you, and you have no idea. Right. You know, I mean, I I think one I saw one I read one story at one point about um, uh, this was an alligator. This was in Florida. Uh, this guy was on a golf course and he went to look for his ball, and it was like the towards the 18th hole. Um, well, when they when his friends went and they were they they got done, they were looking for him, and they're like, oh well, I guess he went to the clubhouse. He just couldn't find his ball. He got disgusted. <laughs> they get to the clubhouse, he wasn't there. They start looking for this guy for days. What happens is an, an alligator comes out of one of the water areas of on the golf course. <laughs> In the drink. Goes after somebody, so they kill it. They cut it open. The guy's inside them. Yikes. Yeah, th- this alligator had dead caught this golfer when he went looking for his ball. That's a nightmare. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, that's what gets me about crocodiles, alligators, the whole thing. Okay, well, in Blackwater, you have this couple – and the girl's sister are on vacation in the Northern Territory. That's another thing. Both movies take place in the Northern Territory of Australia. Um, and it's Adam, his girlfriend, Grace, and Grace's sister, Lee. And they're taking a day trip. Uh, they decide to go to a, a mangrove swamp, and they're going to do a little fishing. Um, but while they're out on the water, you know, they're, they're taken out by this, this guy. What happens is the tour had actually gone so this guy who was behind, almost like an assistant to the guy who ran these tours, said, okay, I'll take you out in a boat. So really, nobody knows they're out there. Hmm. Well, they're attacked. Um, and the boat's capsized by the crocodile. The guide is killed. So Adam, Grace, and Lee are in it. They're, they're up a tree. Okay, that's the only place they can be because now they're in this swampy area surrounded by water. Mm-hmm. So the only safe place to be is up in this tree. Uh, and... The alligator or the crocodile knows they're there and it doesn't leave. It even, you know, one thing we learned about in Rogue is that after they get a kill, um, the crocodiles will drag the the victim off to a specific location Mm -hmm. and keep it there until they decide to eat. Well, the location where this crocodile drags this, um, you know, the, the, uh, the guide who had taken them out there happens to be an area that they can see from the tree. So they're looking at his body floating there, and they know he's going to be eaten at some point. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and of course, it becomes that becomes even more of a dramatic element to the story as it progresses and another victim. <laughs> I am so sold on this movie. This is my kind of movie, survival horror, beastly freak. I love it. Yeah, and it's, it, it, is, it is very suspenseful. Now, one thing I think uh, I noticed about Rogue, and I think it's the same thing with Blackwater, is they're not grisly. They're not overly violent, okay? At least Blackwater is not overly violent, mm. okay? You don't get a lot of the blood because really you're dealing with four characters here, one who dies pretty quickly. Yeah. It really is just how are we going to outsmart this thing? And it turns out that it's an extremely smart crocodile that's following them along. They were able to do, you know, I think what it was is for what they were looking to do, you know, that they, they were able to accomplish a lot. It, it's a very, it is a low budget film. Okay. 
Um, I think it was made for around a million dollars. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, you don't see the crocodile as often in this one as even if you as you do in Rogue. Mm-hmm. But they always let us know it's there, you know. Um, and what it is is the boat is out in the middle of the water, and you get Adam saying, "Hey, I, if I go out there and turn it over, we get out of here. Otherwise, we're we're stuck. We're out in the middle of nowhere. No one knows we're here. We got to get this boat turned over." But they're like, "Well, where's the where's the crocodile?" You know. And that's what gets you about this is you never know if they're there. You never know. There could be 10 of them there. <laughs> yes. You're not going to know that. I even remember watching that from the old Crocodile Hunter show. Yeah. You know, boom. There's one of them where he's just shooting this water that looks still as can be. All of a sudden, and it was in Africa, a dead hippopotamus starts floating down the, the, the river. Boom. 30, 40 crocodiles attacking it all at once. <laughs> that's insane. You know, from, from, from pure stillness to that. Um. But anyway, you know, the, the, the problem with this is the only way they can get out is they've got to get closer to the water. You know, they've got to get close to get to the boat. They've got to get close to, to get across so they can find where they can possibly cross to get to land. Mm-hmm. You know, so every time they've got to make themselves, they've got to get closer to where this crocodile is. Sure. And that brings a real level of tension to do it. Nice. And the camera's always there. You know, it's floating right over the surface of the water, letting us know that, yes, there is something under here. And it might not be here at this moment. It might be over here, but it it could be coming back, you know. Mm -hmm. And they did use real crocodiles. Now, they did superimpose a lot of – they did use CGI to get the crocodiles into the shots, but these are real crocodiles. These are not computer-generated in any way. Yeah, I noticed in the the IMDb, the user review at the bottom said it was – Tense, realistic, and dramatic. So, yeah, <laughs> it is realistic then. It is definitely realistic. Now, I would give this one, again, you know you're not going to get a lot of kills. You're not going to get, there's not a lot of blood in this one. But there is some some tension and there is some high drama uh, that goes along with this. And it's surprising that it takes place mostly up a tree. Most of this movie takes place up a tree. Yet it manages to hold your attention. I love it. That's me. That's my kind of movie right there. Cool. Yeah, well, this is one 7.5. Definitely worth, I'm going to say, a rental. Okay. Worth checking out. Um, And what had happened was um, I had gotten a comment out uh, on this one from Juan. And uh, it's it's funny because with Blackwater, his comment was he always confuses this with Rogue and another one called Primeval. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they came out around the same time, and they have a lot more um, going forth and just, just coming out at the same time. As we said, they're both from the Northern Territory of Australia and a very basic theme and so forth. But anyway, he was asking how it compared to Rogue, and I hadn't seen Rogue in forever. So that was the reason I decided to – I actually changed things up a bit and made that part of my month as well. And I watched that uh, – I guess it was about a week later or so after watching this one. Just a quick note there on Rogue, we actually covered that on the weekly horror movie podcast episode 11, but I saw that you weren't on that episode. It was a listener pick, Tori Hume picked that, and so um, Terror nice. and I reviewed it, and we had a blast reviewing this movie, because it's a beastly freak flick. And yes, stuff. absolutely. Yeah. I, absolutely. Okay, I'll give my rating after you give yours. I don't want to okay. go first, but go no, ahead. Very good. Again, it's sort of the same premise. There's an American writer in Rogue. He goes all around the world for his job. He writes travelogues, you know, does little pieces on travel locations. 
and he's doing an article in Australia, and he's just gotten into the Northern Territory, so he gets a ticket for a boat tour that promises to take them out, you know, show them some crocodiles. Mm-hmm. Um, Kate Ryan, played by Rada Mitchell, is the uh, the captain of the boat. Mm-hmm. He's got a, plenty of passengers on there, makes its way down the river. Uh, just as they're about to bring it to an end, though, um, one of the guys uh, spots of distress flare, and pretty soon others are seeing it, too. So Kate... Um, that's the, the Ronda Mitchell's character decides, okay, I got to check it out. You know, it's, it's just the, 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 the maritime rules. I got to go check out this flare. Um, you know, the, the, the passengers aren't too happy about it. They've got to make connecting, you know, they, they've got buses they got to make. They're, they're meeting people and so forth, but she doesn't have a choice. Well, she goes into this area. She actually goes through some, um, uh, what is she says is like holy protective land, protected land. Uh, to get there, and once she gets to the area where the flare was coming from, boom, boats hit by this huge crocodile, big damage. They all end up on this little island, okay, in the middle, a little, a little inlet type thing. And it's at that point one of the characters realizes, hey, this is a this is a tidal portion of this river, mm-hmm. meaning this 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 bit of land is going to disappear. Yeah. Okay. And they're stranded. And, oh, I love that. Yeah, and one of the characters has already been carried off by by a crocodile. One mm. of the passengers has already been carried off by a crocodile, which you don't see. Yes. You don't see a lot of the violence in this until it gets a little bit later. Um, first off, one of the things that really impressed me about this is the way that the director shoots the film. The, the, he captures so much of the natural beauty of this area of Australia. This, uh, and I said this in, 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 in my review, that uh, some of the footage in this looks like it could have been lifted straight out of one of those BBC Earth documentaries. I, I totally agree. That was actually one of the things that I commented on as well as how good the movie looks. It's In the daytime, it's sunny and colorful. And then the mm-hmm. night scenes are shot well, too. You can actually see everything in the night scenes as well. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yes, and you know what? It's interesting, and it's something I didn't pick up the first time because I hadn't seen the movie then, but it has John Jarrett in it, Mick Taylor from Wolf Creek. Mm-hmm. Nice. Plays plays one of the passengers um, uh, on the boat in this, uh, a guy who you never really – you don't really get into too much of the backstories of the passengers, but you pick up little bits here and there. Like at one point as they're going down the river, he's being sort of quiet. He's withdrawn, John Jarrett's character, and you see him pull out an urn and dump ashes into the water yeah so again you don't know who that was you don't know anything about his backstory but they throw that in there you know it almost like expands the characters without actually revealing anything about them well yeah and and speaking of the characters i I chime in with you here I, i love the character development in this i was really impressed because you get a picture of who each person is in the group basically and what's fun about that is you can anticipate Because you're waiting for them to react because you know their personality types to the upcoming Mm -hmm. events. So you can kind of anticipate what's coming and how they'll probably react. I love that. Yeah, definitely. But anyway, where this thing gets wild, though, is is there's there's uh, there's that I'm not going to get too far into it because I'm not going to get into spoilers. Mm -hmm. But there is a um, uh, a sequence towards the end. You know, as we were talking about, um, I said in Blackwater, crocodiles always carry their victims off uh, and almost like save them yeah, to, to, to devour them later. And um, somebody ends up 
in that area. And this was one big crocodile. Oh yeah, it's I mean, this thing was this thing, you know, like the one in Blackwater, that's a regular crocodile, which are frightening enough. Right. The one in this thing, it's almost like a dinosaur. Yeah, it's huge. As big as this thing is. And the first time you see this rogue crocodile, like something about it seems a little odd. But overall, I'd say, you know, it looks pretty good. I mean, it's yeah. it's CGI'd and stuff. Yeah. But, oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, but again, we're dealing with a movie that, again, probably wasn't a big budget. And for what they had to work with, yeah, I think it looks pretty good. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, and the poster for this is amazing. I found a poster for this that I put out there. It's like somebody floating in the water, and at the bottom, the crocodile swimming up to get them. Yeah, yeah, it's kind I mean, of it's, Jaws-esque. Exactly. It's, right. it's like Jaws, <laughs> but it's it's even creepier because this thing's mouth is open, and it's ready to strike. Yeah. I mean, it's like Jaws, you know, except it's almost turned the other way. Um, but, yeah, the cast in this is good. Rhonda Mitchell's all, one of those actresses who appears in, like, smaller roles. Yes, yeah, and Or she's there every, you know, in some movies. And, and like, I, I know, I'm pretty sure she played the mother in Man on, uh, Man on Fire, the Denzel Washington movie. And she was in Silent Hill and Pitch Black. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So she, and she's been in some genre movies as well. Uh, she does a good job in this. It has Sam Worthington in it in a small role as this, as this arrogant local guy. Uh, who you really hate him at first, and then he ends up being part of this group, and then you're like, wow, it's a good thing this guy's there, because he's actually the one who's taking charge of things here. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, but yeah, the cast of it is is good. Uh, I would give this one, you know what, I'd probably give this one a 7.5, but I this one's closer to a buy for me, though. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. because I think this is a movie that's, I think it would still work on repeat viewings, you know? I mean, it has, obviously. This is my second time seeing it, and it was just as good for me, so... Yeah, I got to back you on that. And in fact, it's a couple other comments about it. I love how Rogue plays with your expectations. It does give you some surprises, and especially in terms of, you know, who gets it and who doesn't. See, that's what I was just going to say that. I love that. some people you've tagged, you say, okay, this person's gone. Right, right, (laughs) right. This person's going to make it. And you're surprised, or you're like, oh, this person's definitely going to be there at the end, and like, whoa, <laughs> you know. So you're right. It, there's there's no rhyme or reason to you know this is this is not going this is not formulaic as far as how it deals with the characters. No, and and it's also it's a really a blast. I I have so much fun watching this movie, and it has a few moments of really effective suspense and tension. And that always adds to a movie. And um, I also admire any movie that doesn't really have to spell out things for the audience like we're idiots. Because earlier in the film, the characters discuss, I mean, kind of very casually, almost in passing. It's not like super underscored about the crocodile stash, what you're talking about, that spot Mm -hmm. where they store their prey. And then later when that setup's paid off, the filmmakers don't you know, remind us about the earlier conversation. They don't show a flashback to that or anything cheesy like that. Right. And I think that's cool. And there's not a lot of gore in this one either um, in the earlier kills, but it comes, you know, eventually you do get some toward the end of the movie. If, yes. If you're looking for that. But my my biggest complaint on this was um, I, the, the film makes a really brave decision earlier on where you're kind of shocked and then it kind of reneges on it and goes back on that. And I I was like, oh, man, come on. You know, so but right. but otherwise, I mean, for me, this this movie, I'm actually really fond of this. I 
think I gave it an eight and said buy it because um, it, it's in the same category as something like Pig Hunt, where it's yes. the kind of film that it's fun to show a group of your friends who have never seen it. So, yeah, this is a buy for me. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Great one. All right. So that's the, the once to look at the two of them together. OK, then we have a movie that's. Uh, very standard in a lot of ways. It it looks a lot like an English remake of an Asian horror movie, which is exactly what it is. Okay. Okay. It's a film called The Echo. It goes along the same lines of movies like, you know, Juan and the Ring in that it has a real creepy little kid in it. Okay. <laughs> and uh, you love this those. one. I do. Yeah. And, and the way that they handle it in this one is pretty good. Now, it's not just the little kid who's creepy in this movie. Okay. But the, and it is it's a remake of a 2004 Filipino horror movie of the same name, The Echo. Okay. Uh Jesse Bradford plays this guy Bobby. Uh, he's just been released on parole. He's done some time for manslaughter. And he moves into the apartment that his mother lived in. Now the movie opens with you don't see anything. It's just dialogue over the credits of a woman who's clearly being terrorized by something. Okay. Hmm. She's screaming. She's running, locking herself in the closet. This tape is going and, you know, something is coming after her and it is terrorizing her. Okay. So it starts off. That's the mood. It starts off with right out, right, you know, right out of the gate. Again, you're not seeing anything, but you're hearing it and it's you know pretty intense what yeah. you're hearing. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So uh, anyway, um, this guy moves into the apartment um, he, he's, as he's walking down the hall, you know, he knows this little girl sitting outside the, the, you know, as he's first going there and she's sitting outside playing on this little piano thing. And, you know, he kind of nods to her, talks to her or whatever, goes into the, goes into the apartment, uh, just a standard, you know, um, apartment. I'm, I want to say, I'm pretty sure this is set in New York city. Um, but you know, uh, that first night he starts hearing strange noises uh, he has what he thinks is this really strange dream about his mother asking for help, um, you know, um, and and what it is is he hears noises coming from the apartment next door fighting where uh, this policeman, it seems like he's beating on his wife. Um, he has an Hispanic wife and the child that he'd seen in the hallway is their child. And, um, you know, he's he's trying not to get involved. A couple times they knock on his door. He lets them in, but, um, you know, he, he, he's not really getting involved to help them with what's going on in, in the apartment next door. Uh, and during this time, he's getting his life back in order. He gets, he gets a job at a garage as a mechanic. He hooks up with his old girlfriend, Alyssa, um, but he gets pulled into this mystery. What is going on here? You know, and it gets more intense each day. Each, each, each day that passes, it gets more intense. Okay. It's it's a very well shot. It's a strongly acted movie. Okay. Uh, it does take things slowly, but it's an unsettling film in the way that a lot of these Asian remakes are unsettling. Mm -hmm. Okay. Letting you know that something's not right. Right. Okay. And, and you pretty much know what it's, what it's going to be. I mean, there's definitely some, you know, deliberate shots of, of showing off the apartment, showing off the area. Um, it's the guy, the, the director of this is the one who directed the, the Filipino original also. Okay. He does get this, this, this early sense of, of like dread and it does get stronger as the movie goes on. Um, it turns out one thing that he discovers is his mother towards the end was living in the bedroom closet. 
He finds rotted food in there. He finds um Is that a that, is that a spoiler? Is that part of no, the premise? No, this thing? is this is something you figure out early on. Oh, okay. Okay. I see. He found that she was living in there and he notices that there it locks from the inside. There's a latch that she installed on this thing. So she could lock the closet from the inside. Yikes. Once he makes that discovery, things really start to get even creepier. Okay. Oh, man. And it does lead to a finale. You know, it's another one of those things where you try the spirits are looking for something to sort of settle what's been going on, you know? And oh, then, you yeah. know, like you got in the ring and you got in Juan and they're all these other movies. Always ticked off about something. Always ticked off about something. And in this movie, they're definitely ticked off. Uh, and it does throw a twist in there at the very at the very end that I think worked. Again, th- this movie it's it's not going to be. I mean, it's it's standard in a lot of the ways that that these remakes were. Okay, it follows a lot of the same beats uh, in the story and everything that that the the Grudge and the remake of the Ring. Now the remake of the Ring I think stands alone, but like the Grudge. Um, uh, what was the one with uh, Jennifer Connelly? Oh, Dark, Dark Water. Water. Dark Water, yes. Mm-hmm. It follows a lot of those beats, okay? So it's not really breaking new ground. Yeah. But what it does, uh, but the ground that is traveled, even though it's been traveled before, it still happens. It still tells a creepy, effective story okay. that, that does pull you in. And it is, it is a movie that, that I think is, is worth checking out. Again, it's called The Echo. From um, 2008, starring Jesse Bradford, uh, I'd give it. Um, I'd probably give this one a seven, actually. Okay. And call it a rental. Okay. Again, it's you're not going to look at this and say, "Wow, this is unique," and I haven't seen this before. But you don't mind because it does draw you in, and you end up being part of the story uh, or getting involved with um, you know what's going on. So, at least enough to to take your mind off of the fact that it's it's standard in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, All right, and that was another interesting discovery. I wasn't really ready for for that one. I wasn't expecting this one to actually be as good as it was. I thought it's like, okay, well, here we go. Because two thousand eight was even a little bit late for these Asian for these English remakes of uh, Asian films. Yeah, I think that's when we got that January, if I'm not mistaken. Isn't that when we got one missed call and that was terrible? Yes. Well, yeah. And um, when was the um, the one we covered on? Um, I know Tara Tovey was part of it. It was it was a remake of the um, the Tale of Two Sisters. The um, Uninvited. Uninvited. Yes. Which was a very good one. Yes. That could have come out around this time as well. Yeah. I'm not sure. I think that was 2009. Was that oh, one? Okay. But, that was even after. That was even later than this one. Okay. Yeah, but that's a good flick. That is a good flick. Yeah, and I think the echoes there too. Okay. Um, the next one I have, this one is, is going to be a little bit light, <laughs> uh, but it's still a movie I enjoy. Oh yeah. Covered this one early on. Here we go. It's from 2006. It's a movie called Fido. Mm-hmm. A must see, right? Even though it's comedy. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a, it's a very, it's a dark comedy because what it is, is it, it combines this world. It combines a 1950s style. It, I put it's part Doug, Douglas Sirk. Now Douglas Sirk is a director who made a lot of melodramas back in the fifties. Okay. The best one being all that heaven allows. That's far and away my favorite Douglas Sirk movie, which has rock Hudson and Jane Wyman in it. It's just a, a really good. And, it builds that sort of um, – uh, it's set in the suburbs. And what it is is Douglas Sirk, what, what set him apart was he was taking a look at 
the, this what in the 1950s was considered the dream. You know, people, the suburbs, get out to the suburbs, get a house, get a family. That's the dream. Mm-hmm. You do that, you're living the dream. Well, he takes a look underneath the surface and says, hey, this isn't, this isn't as idyllic as most people want it to be. Yeah. You know, that you, you have to like, you basically have to do a lot of conforming and, 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 and that's what Hall That Heaven allows uh, deals with. Um, and you see some of that in Fido, too. Yeah, you know, like like with with the character that uh, Carrie Ann Moss is playing early on. You know, she does develop, she does grow as the movie goes, but the character she's playing early on, um, it's all about status with her. Okay, but anyway, in this world, um, uh, there had been um, something had had happened that the dead had come back to life. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, you had a sort of zombie apocalypse going on. There was a big war uh, that had gone on. And um, anyway, along the lines, this guy had created uh, Dr. How, what do they call him? Rothgar uh, Geiger, uh, who you only see in a little like it, 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 I like the way the movie opens because it's, it sort of shows you this um, like one of those old uh, 50s style movies they'd show kids in school. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's basically given the history of how everything came about. But he 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 fixed the problem because he created a collar that when you put it on a zombie's necks, uh, they, they lose their killer instinct, and you can actually domesticate them. Yeah. Okay. You can you can turn them into servants and and whatnot with this as long as they're wearing this collar. Uh, and that's what this movie is about. In this world, it's set in the 1950s. Owning a zombie is a is a status, you know. Mm-hmm. It's it's like okay, well, the, the, you know, the neighbors have a zombie. Why don't we have a zombie? You know, to do the yard work and watch the kid and and everything. And that's what Carrie Moss's character is coming from. Okay, that's what she is. I mean, there's there's even a very sort of disturbing scene with her. Um, you know, the the, the young boy. They, they, it's it's Carrie Ann Moss. She's married um, to Bill, who works for Zomcom, played by Dylan Baker. Mm-hmm. But anyway, they have a son, Timmy. Okay, and Timmy's getting picked on in school by these kids, you know, because what they do for for recess, they don't go out and play. They go out and learn how to shoot. Uh-huh. You know, they got a rifle there because there's the zombies. You know, there's still always that that lingering. Eh, what if these collars malfunction? Type thing. Yeah. So every child learns how to sh- how to shoot a, how to shoot a rifle. Well, anyway, one time when they're out there, these these two bullies come over and they point a, their gun at him. You know, almost to try and scare him. Teachers eventually uh, intervene and and everything's okay. Well, he goes home and tells his mother about it. And Carrie Ann Moss, the mother says, nobody saw you, did they? You know, she wasn't as concerned about his well-being as she was, did anybody see you in such a compromising position? <laughs> no, for her, it's all status. That's what the whole thing is. Yeah, yeah. And she's the reason they get a zombie. Anyway, they do eventually get a zombie. The father's none too happy because clearly he had a very bad experience as a child where his father had turned and he, I think, believe he ended up having to kill his own father. So he's he's petrified of zombies but anyway the zombie they get they nickname it fido it's played by billy Connolly, the comedian very funny guy but he never utters a word in this movie okay <laughs> and he's one of the the strengths of the film but i'll get into that in a minute but anyway um the movie just follows along because as billy um or as timmy gets very close to fido they become friends um his his collar malfunctions <laughs> Uh, at one point, and there's a there's a mishap. Timmy has to hide it, but it kicks off a chain of events that could start up the next zombie apocalypse. Let's just nice. put it that way. Yes. Um, but really, what it did this this movie? Um, 
you know, it starts off with that educational short. It's called A Bright New World. Okay, it talks about the zombie outbreak. It talks about how, how everything's been incorporated. So it's really a good way to start the movie off. Um, and you see that – and the community really is just one of these really nice suburban communities where, where they're living, you know, where everything is about status. And that's the underlying theme of, of this movie, you know. Everybody has a, has a – they have – they behave the way they're supposed to. I mean, there's even a scene where, where Dylan Baker who plays the father, um, agrees. Okay, fine, we'll keep the zombie. And uh, Helen, his wife, kisses him on the cheek, and he's taken aback. He's like, "Yo, you're propriety, you know? You don't just jump up <laughs> and kiss me here, you know?" So that's the society that the, you know, the world. That's yeah. the world that this is taking place in. Yeah, this. And the zombies themselves—they're responsible for a lot of the humor and. All of the horror elements. Now, the horror is light, okay? You do get some gore. You do get a few jump scares in this one, okay? Um, but there's definitely – it's a funny movie. I mean, probably my favorite is the commercial where a girl is standing there. <laughs> oh, no, Grandpa's falling down and he's getting back up. <laughs> That's yeah. sort of the take on that old commercial. I thought that was great. Um, and you get mo- moments like that in this. But even um, and even though I'm not a comedy horror guy at all, I think this film really works because it uses that really um, smart, as you say. I mean, it's it's just a commentary on so many things. There's a lot of stuff under the surface. This is something yes. that Doctor Walking Dead just has a field day with this kind of movie right here. So it's worth it for that for that reason. I mean, if you're a horror fan who just wants a scary movie, this isn't it. But if you're a person who likes to try to think about the meanings and you know what's being said between the lines then i think it's a lot of fun yeah definitely and this is another one that that throws you for a loop um as far as the characters go because mm-hmm. you think you get them pegged they've got that neighbor played by tim ba- blake nelson who you find out he's got this zombie tammy a young girl that you know basically has become his his sex slave and it's it's well, it's almost a sad story. You, you find out that this this young girl had an aneurysm, and as soon as like the aneurysm was done, boom, they slapped the collar on her and gave her to this guy who is basically using her for sex. Um, and you it's like, wow, that's really kind of gross. I mean, that's like the, the, this guy is a bit of a lich, but that's not how they pitch the character. Right. He ends up being a very different type of character, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I like that. I like how they they sort of threw that into the mix, saying, "Hey, you know, we're we're going to give you these characters, and we're going to just going to lay them out. This is what they do, but that doesn't always define what you know how they're going to be in the movie. You know, they're not going to uh, we're going to they're going to be they're going to be real characters. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not going to be they're not going to be caricatures. Uh, and I like that about the movie as well. Yeah. Um, it's it's very it's very well acted. It's very it's a very smart movie." Mm-hmm. And, it's, put together. and did you mention it's a Canadian film, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. This is out of Canada. It's cool. Um, yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting on the DVD, they have a commentary by the composer who put together the score. And it's only, you know, at, at certain portions of the movie where he's discussing it. But he really did draw attention to this. I mean, he put together a really good score for this movie. A lot of it inspired by old time Hollywood films. You know, the kind where it's setting the mood, okay? Yes. But it also really does bring in that 50s flavor, 
that you know not just the society but the music itself really builds that as well mm-hmm. so there's a lot of things in this movie that that work okay um and it does have its it does have things to say like it has some social commentary in there like you were discussing uh it's one that that, that I would I would say this is one I'd give it an 8 and I'd say own this one mhm you know I think this is one I think you'd go back to yeah that that's great yeah I think yeah. I think I'm somewhere around an eight on that too, and it's a it's a buy. But yeah, yep. I mean, and I'm not even a comedy horror guy, so I mean, that's no, I know a lot of I respect, a <laughs> lot of respect that's, there for that. That's not your uh, that's not your forte. <laughs> no. Hi, this is Jay of the Dead, and for this episode's Blue Moon Zombie review, I've got a fun little zombie flick for you from 2008 called Dance of the Dead. I first learned about this film from my friend Midnight Corey on the Horror Jungle podcast, and I wanted to review it here just in case you never heard that Horror Jungle episode. Dance of the Dead was directed by Greg Bishop. He also directed that 2006 thriller called The Other Side. Probably nobody saw that, but anyway, supposedly Dance of the Dead was chosen by Sam Raimi himself to be distributed through his new label, Ghost House Underground. So there you go. It sounds like it at least has Sam Raimi's stamp of approval. But here's the premise. Cosa High School is getting ready to have its prom, but a nearby chemical plant and a cemetery are situated a little too close together, which brings about a return of the living dead. So the prom is under zombie attack, and the town's only hope is the nerdy sci-fi club members who couldn't get dates to the dance. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about the tone of this movie, because technically, it's a horror comedy. And I'm generally not a fan of mixing horror with comedy like this, but if you've seen Trick or Treat, the Mike Doherty one, well, Dance of the Dead is a lot of fun, just like that Trick or Treat movie. It has some creepy aspects, but it's not really scary just like Trick or Treat. It has some comedic elements, but they're not like over-the-top ridiculous. So I'd say only the very beginning looks kind of silly, like it's going to be one of those dumb horror comedies, but stick with it, it gets better. And this is actually the kind of light horror movie that you'd want to rent, say, if you were having like your little cousins over to your house and you wanted to show them a horror film, but not scare them out of their minds. And it'd be a fun movie to have playing in the background during a party, you know, something like that. And I'm not saying this movie is weak, though. I mean, let's get that straight, because it has some gore still, like any self-respecting zombie flick. And there's a very unsettling scene that involves making out that really sticks with you. And I'll just say this. I think it's worth it. But (laughs) the characters in this movie are a little bit extreme. For instance, there's a bad kid who really chews up the scenery in his bad kid role and he's so into it he's still entertaining and then the zombies in this movie all seem to move at different speeds but they're mostly fast oh and one more thing dance of the dead even has zombie frogs in it but they play a very small role so i'm coming in with this one at a 6.5 out of 10 and i'm gonna have to say it's a rental it's not as good as something like zombie land or Shaun of the dead but if you're looking for a fun light zombie flick dance of the dead is a good choice well, that's it for this Blue Moon Zombie Review. This has been Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City. So on behalf of Zombie Reckoning Podcast, this is Jay of the Dead, signing off. 
Well, that actually takes us into the main portion of the list now. Now we're getting into the top 10. I'll count them down from 10 to 1. I did try ranking them. Nice. Okay. Now, the one that I have at number 10 would have been probably higher. The only reason I put it at number 10 is because it is a sci-fi comedy horror with the emphasis a little bit more on the comedy and sci-fi than it is on the horror. But it's a fun movie, and it, it surprised me by how much I enjoyed it. It's, it's from 2009. It's called Infestation. Okay? Okay. All right. It's got the, the stars Chris Marchetti. He plays a guy named Cooper. He works in an office, and he's just about to be fired. Okay? Um, when all of a sudden, he's in there with his boss, this woman, Maureen. All of a sudden, there's this loud noise. They lose consciousness. Okay, you get some of those quick shots of like somebody starting to re- starting to wake up. When when Cooper finally comes to, he realizes he's wrapped in a cocoon, and he pulls his way out of it. And everybody in the office is wrapped in these cocoons, and there are two giant beetles. Now, I mean, these things are as big as like a like a big dog, <laughs> wandering around, um, basically feeding each person, keeping them alive. Um. Oh, I know. He ends up fighting them off. He starts waking people up. Uh, one of the people who wakes up is Maureen's daughter, Sarah. You know, this whole scene where he goes outside. Sarah, uh, Maureen's all upset because her daughter was coming to visit her. They go outside. She's cocooned in her car. Cooper's pulling her out of there. And as he's doing that, Maureen, poof, she's swept up by this flying bug. And she's carried off. Okay, so now they've set up. Okay, we've got the ones on the ground. And we also got these bugs that can fly. Okay. Um, and the, it looks as if the entire world has been cocooned. Like everybody in this movie, they have to be pulled out of these cocoons. Uh, they have to be woken up. Mm-hmm. And it seems as if Cooper was the first one to do this. Well, anyway, they're being chased, him and Sarah out in the streets. They don't go back into his building. They end up going into this cafeteria where they wake up a group of other people. There's um, Albert, and he has his deaf-mute son that works with him, uh, Hugo. Um, this, this, uh, you know, pretty blonde woman, uh, this, this, um, uh, young student, uh, who's starting to be a masseuse, they form this group and they know, okay, they've come to the conclusion. Okay. We've been taken over. They, these bugs have taken over. And Cooper says, you know what? The be- best place to go is probably going to be my father's house. It turns out his father is a retired military man, uh, named Ethan. He's played by Ray Wise. Ray Wise is awesome. He's yes. absolutely incredible. He has a bomb shelter. Food and water for months, the whole nine yards. He's a survivalist, okay, being a former military man. So they decide they're going to go out there. Of course, something happens on the way there that has him rethinking, has Cooper rethinking his plan. Okay, first off, the, 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 the guy who plays, it's, it's more of a comedy, I'd say, than it is anything else, okay? Chris Marquette, he, he's really good as Cooper, all right? He, he, he plays a, a wise-ass type character, and he does it really well. Um, you know, what it is, is one of the reasons he's getting fired from his job was he has everybody in the office playing this game that he himself created. You know, when someone's back was to him, he'd call their name. And when they turn around, he'd pretend like he didn't, like he just goes on pretending. And then you'd get a point every time you'd get somebody to turn around. And (laughs) so, and everybody in the office is playing this game. He's disrupted all the work going on in this office with people playing this game. It sounds very juvenile. It is very juvenile, yes. And and his father, as the movie opens, his father, who's friends with Maureen, his boss, and this is the reason he got this job. Um is sort of giving him hell on the phone saying, you know, what's this thing you're doing here? <laughs> you know, I just start this game. But anyway, um, what, one of the things I liked about this, okay, they, they do introduce um, at one point this hybrid bug, 
which uh, it turns out that there is something that the bugs do that can turn a person into a hybrid. They sprout these spider-like legs, and they're used to almost collect the bodies. Okay, and all these bugs have their own have their own roles. And these these hybrids, the first time we see one, wow! I mean, it's <laughs> you know this is not something you're going to want to mess with. And it's a really good scene. It's one of the best scenes in the movie when they see the first hybrid. It turns out to be the brother of one of the characters when they were going to this house to visit, you know, the family. Um, the brother of one of the people that uh, that Cooper had woken up, um, and they're very difficult to kill. And um, just really creepy. But anyway, one of the things I liked about this is the the relationship that gets to, and it doesn't happen until halfway through the movie, but when Ray Wise and uh, Chris Marquette, you know, father and son in this movie, I liked their interplay. And Ray Wise, like you're saying, he's so good. Okay. I mean, uh, to to set up the way that these characters are, uh, the the, the relationship that they have, um, Cooper finally makes it to his father's house. Okay. And the camera is set up in the living room and, and the characters that are with him are sitting in this living room area. And he goes off to see, he calls, you know, to, you know, dad, daddy's calling for him. Well, you see him come walking back in and sit in the couch. Okay. The camera never leaves this area. And one of the characters says to him, Oh, well, you know, may, he might be around here somewhere. He's like, Oh no, I found him. He's cocooned to his exercise bike in there. <laughs> wow. And Cooper just continues to sit there. Yeah. And this guy's like, well, don't you think maybe you want to? And Cooper's like, hey, I know, I know. I'm working myself up to it. <laughs> you know, because he can't just go in and wake this guy up. That's the type of relationship that they have such this tense relationship with each other that he can't just go in and wake his father up. He doesn't see him and run over to him and wake him up. He has to psych himself up to do it first. Yeah. Because he knows he's going to have to deal with all this baggage <laughs> once he wakes him up. Right. And it is, like I said, it's treated more for humor. I mean, the first time, first thing that, that Ray Wise's character, Ethan, does is, is he's out in the backyard yelling Lucy, Lucy, Lucy for some somebody, right? Mm-hmm. And no, the bugs are drawn to noise. So so Cooper goes out there and he's like, hey, quiet. You know, this, I told you that they're, they're drawn to noise. What are you doing standing out here screaming? And he's like, well, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, what if it was you out there? And, and you know, the, the Cooper's like, well, it's not me. I'm here. You know, and he's like, no, it's just your little sister out there. Well, it turns out it's a dog. Okay, it's like this little dog that they put a bow on and he treats it like a kid or whatever. Yeah. Um, but so so that's the type of relationship they have. And and once Ray Wise is there, I think the movie gets even a little bit better. I liked it before that, but the introduction of his character, because he's such a strong actor, and he's a very strong comedic actor, as I found in this movie too, it does take it to it to an even higher level. But anyway, what happens is Cooper decides he's gotta go back in. There's this huge lair in the middle of I don't know if it's in the middle of the city, but where all of the bugs, it's basically where the queen is, and that's where she's laying her eggs. He ends up having to go in there to rescue somebody. Um, but the, the movie itself, like I said, it's light on horror, but it is very well done. I mean, the bugs look good. I mean, this is you know a CGI type movie, but the bugs look very good. Um, at least they impressed me. Okay. Um, and, you know, the, there is a grand finale that's pretty intense. Uh, but, again, it's going to be more comedy than anything. Now, one, the only negative I have about this movie is the extreme final scene. Because it was set up originally to be a trilogy. Okay? The whole movie plays out. It answers everything. It, it, you know, it takes all the characters full circle. So it is a movie in its own. 
But there's a moment at the very end where you th- they're, they're trying to set up the next movie, and it just ends abruptly. Mm, okay. And there's no and there's no next movie, and there's not going to be a next movie. No. Okay. Okay. Um, I mean, because I've been, uh, I actually been, you know, the, on Twitter, I actually heard back from Chris Marquette, the actor in this, because I've been putting tweets out about this movie. Um, I heard back from the director and from Chris Marquette, the star of this. He said that him and the director actually have another movie coming up. It's a zombie movie coming up in 2015 that now I'm going to be interested in checking out. Uh, But this really surprised me. I mean, this is one that I'd heard some people say, hey, this is worth seeing. Uh, But I was surprised by how entertaining it was. I'd give this one, I'm going to give it a a 7.5 and say it's definitely at least worth a rental. Okay. That's uh, Infestation. Infestation, 2009. 2009. 7.5, and it's a rental. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Oh. And, and I think I remember where you got your number nine pick from, if it's the same same film. Okay. Yes. Wilderness? Yes. Okay. Uh, where, do you, where, did I, where did I hear about this one from? It, is this the one from 2006? Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah, this was actually, this is one of Bill Shetty's... Um, indie assault picks on uh i believe it was planet macabre oh my goodness yes it is yes that must be where i heard about it <laughs> yeah. okay and i'll be honest i never did check it out before this month I, that's probably why i wanted to say it okay <laughs> yeah same here okay. it's been on my list for a long time okay well it now this is okay it's wilderness 2006 um it was produced in the uk all right it's about these uh, uh these it's about a group of delinquents um and they're, you know, all part of this uh, correctional facility. And one of them uh, commits suicide. A guy named Dave ends up committing suicide. And they find out that a lot of it has to do because of the abuse that's been heaped upon him by, these, by his fellow inmates. Two in particular, Steve and Lewis, played by Stephen Wright. And Lewis is played by Luke Neal. Um, so... To keep this from happening again, the warden tells their guard, this guy named Jed, played by Sean Pertwee, take these guys out to have almost like a team-building type seminar. Okay, take them to, to this island. They have, we have our own little island that we go to for these type of things, set up camp there for a few days, teach these guys how to act like a group. All right, because we don't want this type of thing happening again. All right, so it, along with um, these two who sort of did this, uh, they bring out a guy named Blue, Lindsay, Jethro, and this new guy who just got there named Callum. Just started, just joined the group like a couple days earlier. So didn't have anything to do with what had happened to Dave. But, you know, now he's part of the group. He goes with him. They go to this remote island. Um, while they're there, they make another discovery that there are other juvenile defenders from the female prison there. Okay. They, which they didn't know they were going to be there. It's like this, the, they're, they're, the guardian and two girls are there as well. You know, the guard, uh, Jed, tries to get them to leave. They don't want to leave, whatever. But anyway, the real story is, is that there's some, someone else is on the island. It's a killer. He's got a crossbow and, and a pack of vicious dogs with him. Nice. Okay. They don't know. Nobody knows who this is. Nobody knows why he's after them. But they have to grand together because he starts picking them off one by one. Okay. And he's obviously a, a, a skilled He's obviously skilled in military tactics or something because they never see him. Okay. You don't know where he is, but he's watching them at every moment. Okay. And there are a couple really strong scenes where characters are looking up. I mean, there's one where, where Callum 
that, like you said, they get him to the conclusion that, that this guy's watching them. He's like giving the middle finger. He's looking all around, smiling and everything, trying to give this guy, let him know, hey, you know, to hell with you. Screw you. <laughs> and as he walks away in the corner of the screen, three feet away from where Colin was standing, you see this guy slowly crawl back into the woods. Whoa. Which you didn't see him until that moment. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, he was right there. And you didn't, as a viewer, you didn't see it. So that cool. really, that made this, that added to this film. But what it is, is is it does have a strong, you know, it starts off as a drama, almost like with this anti-bullying message. There's a scene where um, Steve and Lewis corner Dave and Lindsay, who's another one that they pick on, in this closet. And they urinate on them. All right, they're just doing everything they can to make these 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 you know these two kids' life a living hell. One of them at works, he ends up killing himself. Okay, but once it gets to the island, then it's then it switches. Okay, um, once they realize one of these characters has been killed, they see his severed arm floating in in the in this like river. Um, they come back and they're trying to figure out what to do. Boom! All of a sudden, a character's hit with an arrow right in the right in the abdomen. Ooh. You don't know where it's been fired from. Few seconds later, another one hits him, and then another. He ends up being pinned to a tree. Okay, at which point you hear the dogs coming in. Okay, everybody else scatters at this point, and the scene where the dogs attack this guy uh, pinned to the tree is extremely graphic and extremely violent. Mm, okay? That sounds like the stuff that nightmares are made of. Absolutely. This 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 is not. I mean, these dogs pull him apart, and you see it. You wow. see it in all, you see it in full detail. They show it. Okay? They show it. <laughs> they do not cut away. They show it. Okay. Um, if the movie has one weakness, it's the ending. Okay. The killer does eventually, you realize who the killer is a little bit earlier on, which is not, you know, and it's fine. It doesn't hurt the story at that point. But once the killer, once they meet the killer and he starts to speak, all of his menace drips away and he even becomes vulnerable, it seems like at that point. So and and it it does detract, okay, at that point. I'm not going to go too deep into it, but he's not the only monster. You know, there's another one of these characters is also a monster and is responsible for for a few fatalities as well. So it's like you got these two being uh, these two uh like like really nasty people working in unison, but they're not working in unison. It's just they both happen to be committing these horrible, you know, uh, atrocities. Uh, so that was another that's another good thing about it. And it does it is a graphic movie. I mean, it, this is a graphic, violent movie. And if you can stomach that, then it's worth checking out. Uh, I would actually give this one an eight. And I think it's worth picking up. I think it's worth putting in the collection. Okay. And it is it is a bloody film, but it's it's tense, it's well acted, and it is a survival tale. So Wilderness from two thousand six, Doc says it's an eight out of ten, and he says, buy it. Absolutely. Nice. And Bill Shetty says the same thing. I mean, I forget his number rating or whatever, but it was a buy for Bill Shetty as well. Okay. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I think this is, knowing Bill Shetty, this is definitely one that I, I think would uh, would appeal to him. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> the number eight is a movie. This one I actually first heard of on an episode of Terror Troop. Oh, cool. Uh, it's one that um, uh, Boss Butcher and uh, Bloody Lizzie went and saw uh, theatrically. Nice. And it's called uh, The Theater Bazaar from 2011. Okay. All right. It's, it was inspired by the, the Grand Guignol, you know, that, that Paris theater that, uh, that has the dark 
uh, sort of horror productions he used to put on dating back to you know beginning of the 19th 20th century yeah uh and what it is is it's this is a uh, an anthology it has six short films each by a different director telling six unique stories including a framing story oh wait let me look at that again i might be wrong because i'm wondering if no the framing story is one of the six okay and of course you know some of the shorts are better than others as they always get in an anthology but to be honest there's not one of them in the group that's that's awful okay none of them are completely bad it starts off with this young woman uh she, she's looking at this abandoned theater across the street from her apartment and she's drawn to it so one night she just she sees the doors open she walks in and as she sits down um well maybe it is six tales okay maybe the framing story is the seventh because i'm looking here what i wrote down six tales it's presented by this clockwork almost like a mannequin is played by udo kier He's almost, uh, this is the wraparound story. Uh, it's called uh, Theater Guignol. Um, this was directed by Jeremy Cast. And this is, this is the, the framing story that, that goes back to after each tale is told. It's like um, Udo Kier's character is relating each one of these stories. Okay. Um, and it's a very good segment in itself. You know, the framing story is very good. You know, it deals with these life-size marionettes. It's visually very interesting. Um, and it, it, it's, you know, most framing stories are just sort of throwaways. This one's not, this one's pretty good. Uh, the first movie is called mother of toads. Okay. I'm, I'm not going to go too deep into these. I'll just touch on them briefly. Yeah. Um, okay. it's about a student researching the occult. He goes to France with his girlfriend and they encounter an old gypsy woman. Um, and, and after he sells the woman, a pair of earrings that's inspired, it's, it's very much inspired by HP Lovecraft. It's like, uh, it's earrings from that would be like. Something from the Necronomicon. <laughs> she invites the couple to come to her house. The girl doesn't want to go. He ends up going and ends up pulled into this very strange sort of cult thing. Um, and again, it's called the Mother of Toads. You can get sort of an idea of what's going on here. Mm -hmm. That one, to me, would be the, the weakest of them all. Okay? It's not bad, but it's a little bit goofy in the special effects area. And <laughs> I can't say that, that you know, it, it's it's... It's a little bizarre, but it's it's not it's not bad. It's interesting. Okay, next up is is a, a segment called "I Love You." Uh, it's about an overbearing husband uh, who finds out that his wife is not the woman he thought she was. Okay, he loves her. He she leaves. He's almost suicidal every time she threatens to leave him. Turns out this woman is completely a different person than what he thought she was. Okay, this ends up. It has a very disturbing final scene in this one. I love okay. stuff like that. That's one of my favorite things is when the final scene kind of haunts you and stays with yes. you. Is it that kind of thing? It is. Nice. It is. The, okay. the final scene it is. And again, uh, I mean, this, I will say that it's, it, I did know it's well made. It's well made. It's well acted. And it is interesting. And it does sort of, it does sort of get you at the end. Okay, there's another one in here called The Accident. It's just a, this one's a little lighter on horror, uh, but it's, very, it's a very good movie. It's a very good short about this young girl. She witnesses the aftermath of this fatal motorcycle ass accident. She keeps asking her mother you know, about the nature of death. Why do people have to die? And the movie is told like the girl's in bed, the mother's talking to her, and it's constantly showing you the flashbacks of this accident. Okay? Um... And part of what makes it so good is the score that's done. This guy, Pierre Marchand, did a score for this. And it really works to the movie's advantage. Again, horror light, 
but it's very well made. Okay, it's a very well made movie, and it does you know it it is disturbing. Okay, I'll put it that way. But I don't think it's going to give you nightmares. And then the very last one. Okay, I'm going to talk about two that I think stood out. But the very last one is this thing called Sweets. Okay, it's a um, a dark comedy about a woman Estelle. She seduces this guy Greg with a variety of sweets. You know, she's like feeding him cotton candy, cake. <laughs> Any type of sweet you can come up with. And they show these scenes where she'd get me. It, yeah, well, it's almost like it's almost like a sexual thing. Like they're in the bathtub and she's feeding him sweets, you know, or, or well, it's, it's almost like the sweets are standing in for like a sexual type of relationship, or at least enhancing. Yeah, the, I mean, the, just Twinkies would be enough to get me in. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, all of a sudden, one point she announces the relationship's over. Okay. Greg, at this point now, he's, he's overweight. His teeth are rotting away. Um, he's doing everything he can to stay with her. But they are going to meet again under some very strange circumstances. What it is, is it, it really is a fetishistic look at gluttony, okay? Mm-hmm. It is, it's very disgusting, okay? <laughs> but it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an entertaining dark comedy. But it's very tough to watch. You don't want to be watching this short while you're eating. All right. It will okay. turn your stomach. Okay. Is, is it worse than that movie feed? <laughs> um, no, I, you know, I, I don't know about that. No, oh, okay. this one, this one, it, it definitely will turn your stomach. It's going to play on you. These are all those ones are good. Now the two that, uh, that are left are ones that I think are, are the best. Okay. The first is directed by Tom Savini actually. Wow. And it's called wet dreams. Okay. It's, I put it as sometimes sexy, often violent short about this guy every night dreams that his penis has been cut off. All right, that's his dream. That's his nightmare. Wow. It has Debbie Rashan plays his wife, who he actually abuses. Like, he's an abusive husband. Uh, Savini himself is in it as a therapist. And it really does focus on the power of dreams. And as you'd expect from Tom Savini, it has a chair of gore. Okay? It is a gory short, and it is a, it's bloody. And <laughs> it ends in... It, it ends very interesting it's a very interesting ending to this film okay then there's another one called vision stains now this is a fascinating one okay you have this young girl she has discovered a way to preserve the memories of others now how she does it is she murders them and what she does is she's going after people like drug addicts vagrants um you know an all-female okay she goes up to them, and before she kills them, she does eventually kill them. Before she does so, she injects a needle into their eye. And just before the moment of death, Yikes. she withdraws some liquid from the eye and injects it into her own. What that does is it almost passes the victim's – you know how they say your life passes before your eyes when mm-hmm. you die? Yeah. She can now see everything that's passing before her eyes for these people's lives, and she writes them down. She's recording. She's basically set herself up to record the memories of all these people. That kind of reminds me a little bit of that um, Brainstorm movie from 1983. Right. The one with Christopher Walken. Yeah, I love that. And that is, yeah, that's an interesting film, isn't it? That's, that's, I think that was Natalie Wood's last movie, as a matter of fact. But that is an interesting film. Correct. Sci fi, Um, but still, still kind of creepy. Not horror. It's sci fi, but creepy. As a matter of fact, it's it's. I've been reading recently about how it's now looking like she might have been murdered. Oh yeah, yeah. You that's... know, by uh, and Robert Wagner being the the key suspect. It turns out Christopher Walken, who was in that movie with her, was on the boat that night, oh, and that's crazy. Uh, Robert uh, Robert Wagner got a little upset, a little jealous. 
But anyway, um, yikes. Getting back to this, uh, it's it's just a fascinating story, you know. She and and she injects it into her own eye. Now, needles and eyes are very disturbing for me. Oh yeah. Okay, I'm sure they're disturbing for a lot of people. Yeah, that's bad. You know, news. I mean, Fulci loved eye violence. <laughs> um, that scene in audition. You know, you got all these movies that that. Yeah. That deal with that. Needles and eyes, not good bedfellows. <laughs> no, no. And she's injecting it, and you see it several times. And you see her, you know, putting this in there, uh, putting her, the needle into her own eye. And the eye is bloodshot. It's, it's, it's definitely not in good shape from what, she's have to do, from what she's doing. But she considers herself almost like an historian of sorts, preserving the memories of these lost women. You know, who otherwise their stories would never be told. Things get a little out of hand when she encounters a pregnant prostitute and she decides to, instead of the prostitute, try to get her unborn fetus. And that's where things sort of go off the rail a little bit. But anyway, those would be the two standouts for me, wet dreams and vision stains. Wet dreams, from a horror standpoint, it's Tom Savini, it's gore, you're gonna, it's, it's good. Vision stains just from almost like a Twilight Zone-esque uh, type of thing where it's just such a fascinating story. Yeah, that's freaky. You know? it, it is. And so there's really not a stinker in the bunch. There's not one of these films that I would point <laughs> to and say, oh, that's not good. You know, or it's not well made or something. Again, Mother of Toads would probably be the lesser of them all. Mm-hmm. But it's still, it's it's not without its moments. Okay. okay. And and it is, uh, it, it is, it's one of the better horror anthologies that I've seen that's come out in recent years. And you don't get too many anymore. You know, it's not like you get a lot of them, but, uh, well, yeah, I mean, you get ABCs of death and, 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 and so forth, but this is a, this is a good one. I would definitely recommend theater bazaar. I'd give this an eight also. Okay. Eight and out of 10. Can, eight out of 10. And if you can, I would say, pick this one up. Okay. So Dr. Shock says the anthology horror film The Theater Bazaar from 2011 is an eight and buy it. Yep. All right. Cool. Okay. Now, Jay, this is one that, and I'm sure you know where I'm, where I'm going to be going now. This is one that I ended up watching because you had talked about it. Oh. It's one that Bill Shetty, I believe, had talked about as well. Yeah. I love this movie. Yeah. He it's, loved it's, it too. Uh, it's The Barons. Yes, 2012. Okay. From 2012, yes. Um, every summer, you know, for me, I, I, again, I've mentioned this before, but I drive right through these barrens mm-hmm. when I head down to the Jersey Shore every year. Now, I'm not driving through the wilderness section. I'm on the Garden State Parkway, but it cuts straight through the barrens. I mean, if you look at a map, these the, the, the barrens take up the, the better part of southern New Jersey. I mean, pretty much a large portion of the state. I think overall, it's like over a million acres or something like that. Yeah, crazy. That, that are the barrens. And I do end up driving, you know, through this area. And, and I always leave I always leave nice and early. So I'm usually like one of the very few cars driving through here. But this movie definitely, <laughs> I, I, I even put it after watching this movie, I might move a little quicker. Through them, I mean, you could do like sixty-five on the Garden State Parkway. I might kick it up a little bit from yes. there, yes, um, just yes. to get out of here because this movie. Okay, it's it's uh, this this um, father. Uh, well, let me see. Okay, just just to set it up. Yeah, uh, a lot of it uh, has to do. Uh, it goes around the the, the Jersey Devil. Yes. All right, that's a, that's a very central figure in this. It's just this sort of strange sort of monster. It's been sighted in the area since seventeen thirty-five. 
mm-hmm. when it was supposedly born. Um, in the movie, the, the Richard, played by Stephen Moyer, uh, he thinks as a child he had a run-in with the Jersey Devil. You know, during one of the many fishing trips he took to the Barrens with his father. Um, but he wants to take his family back there. He's been going through some problems with his with his second wife, uh, Cynthia, played by Mia, Mia Kirscher, Kirshner. I'm sorry. He has a daughter, older daughter Sadie, and his young son Danny. And they all go into the Barrens. They're going to go camping. Um, but as they're there, Richard becomes invin- convinced that the Jersey Devil is back, and he's watching them, and it's it's stalking him and his family. Um, but you sort of wonder, is this real monster really there or is this in his head? They do show it sometimes at different parts of the movie, but you never really know for most of the film, whether this thing is real yeah. or whether it's in his head. And it's a master okay. stroke about it. I love that. It, it's, mm-hmm. it's so creepy that way because yeah, you don't know. And so it is a beastly freak film, which is not a spoiler to say that because you do see the imagery that he at least thinks he's seeing. Yes. And is yes, exactly. Yes. And it's a good it's a it's a it's it's a good creature. <laughs> yes. I thought this was a well-made creature that they the, that they put together for this movie. Now, yeah. it is as much a psychological drama mm. as it is a horror film because you do have this main character um he's trying to figure out what's going on and Stephen Moore is really good. Yes, he is. I mean, I think he's excellent as as this father who and and what happens is you find out something happened to him a few weeks earlier. That could be pushing him over the edge. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That that he never told anybody about, and it comes up. You know, as the movie goes on, you realize it's like, wow, this guy. He needs to get to a doctor soon, or he's going to die. So the movie really plays with you. You know, as a viewer, you don't really know what to believe or what to expect, and I just love getting jerked around that way. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and he starts giving in. He starts losing he starts losing his cool. There's a scene around a campfire. Really cool scene where where this uh was one uh, young character is telling the story of um uh the Jersey Devil. Almost, you know, this like a campfire story. Mm-hmm. And you know that the and, and they set it up to have this sort of big scare, these other these friends of his. Uh, and Richard loses his, loses his cool. I mean, he like really overreacts to it. Oh man. Starts screaming at them. Um, uh, just like, wow. You know, he like really sort of lost it. I mean, even Cynthia's like, you know, I mean, his son was scared by it, which is sort of the, the idea of campfire stories anyway. So, but anyway, um, that's when you first get the idea that, Hey, this guy's, this guy's kind of losing it. He's becoming unwound here, and it carries on from there. He ends up leaving this one campsite area. He's like, I don't want to be here anymore. Let's get out of here. Let's go deeper in. Let's find a place to camp on our own. Now, one thing, I would not have stopped in the area he stopped in. Well, no. With the discovery he made. Right, right. With that, with the, they, they end up in this area where they find a dog dead that had been tied to a tree. It died, obviously, of starvation or whatever and there's a tent that something had torn apart and whoever was in there is no longer there and whoever was in there left abruptly or were taken from this tent and in fact if i had um thought i encountered the jersey devil as a child i would never take my family back to this area no (laughs) no me neither me neither right you know i mean i now i am not a camper to begin with i've never been a camper I've never, and I think a lot of it does have to do with those slasher movies in the 80s growing up with them. Yes, yes. I mean, my my wife's family, they're big into camping. They love camping, and, and God bless them for it. It's just not for me. <laughs> I, I, I cannot sit 
lay comfortably in the middle of the woods in the middle of the night. I wake up at 2 a.m. in the middle of the woods, and you, you're you going to hear noises. Oh, yeah. You don't want to tangle with a madman Mars out there. Exactly. And you're laying in a tent. You're laying in this little, like, this 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 tent uh, that's no protection whatsoever. It's Mm-mm. barely a protection from the elements. Right. Let alone anything that's going to decide hey. <laughs> to, to come after. I'm not even talking. It doesn't even have to be a, a masked killer, a, a, a bear. Could get at me and take me out, take me out of one of these things, you know. Exactly. I, I'm just not a camper. It's just not for me. Thank you very much. Let me go to the beach where I can see everything around me for miles. Right, right. Um, but anyway, the, the, what I, the movie takes you along, and it works really well as a psychological sort of thriller. Yeah, it works very well. And then I was not expecting where it went. Yeah, I mean, it pays off, full of surprises. And I'll also chime in. This hits, the Barons hits most elements that I want from a horror flick, especially in the fact that it's smart, it's very fun, it's very well done. And listeners, when you look up the cover art to this, the cover art, at least the one on IMDb, is terrible. So, yeah, so, it really is. <laughs> so ignore that. Like, I know you look it up on IMDb and you're like, yeah, right, guys, I'm not checking this out. Yeah, the cover art's awful. Trust us on this, right, Doc? <laughs> Exactly. I mean, I, that would have been that was the one thing that had kept me from watching it earlier. You look at the even the DVD <laughs> cover for the Blu-ray. I'm sorry, I have this on Blu-ray. You look at the Blu-ray cover. You're like, this looks dull. Yeah. And it's because of the artwork that they put on it. I Ignore know. that. Ignore that. Yeah. Seriously. Now I'm with you 100 percent on that one because it will turn people off of this movie unnecessarily. Yeah, and that's a shame because this is a beastly freak flick. I call it a must-see, Doc, personally. Absolutely. I agree. I would give it I'd give the you know, I think for a lot of these I'm gonna stay in the eight category um till we hit a certain point here and I might kick it up a little bit. But I'd give this one an eight. And I I would buy this one. I'm well obviously I did buy it. I just said I got the Blu-ray. But I would uh, recommend other people buy this one as well um, it does it even even with knowing the surprise oh, knowing yeah. it's still that it, well done that i think even a repeat viewing it's it's going to work oh yeah this is this is going to be an annual viewing film for me at least um so that's the barons from 2012 doc gives it an eight and that's exactly what i rated it too it's an eight out of ten i say buy it and it is a must see absolutely Okay, that brings us to now number six. Now, this is one, Jay, I said, I know you said you had, you had, I don't know if you had a chance to watch it. I know, I could, I could cry right now because I didn't get to it, okay. but I, but okay, I do, enough. I do have it. And so I've been very curious about this, so I can't wait to hear your review. All right. This is from Eduardo Sanchez, who I know you're going to be talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell you what, Eduardo Sanchez, now he's, he got to start with the Blair Witch Project. Mm-hmm. Anytime you read anything about Eduardo Sanchez, it's going to say co-director of the Blair Witch Project. Okay. Yeah. But he has done things after that. I mean, he did he did Lovely Molly, which I haven't actually seen, but I've heard a lot of good things about it's it. It's good. It's good. Uh, okay. He and he did the movie you're talking about. What is it again? It, it's, it's called it's, Exists, Doctor Shock. It is a Bigfoot movie. The one I've been wanting to see. I mean, I'm not saying that. It couldn't be better, but it's pretty close to what exactly what I've always wanted. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Now I'm anxious to see it myself. Yes. Because this guy, obviously, he has what it takes. You know, he, he's, he puts out a – and then this is the one um, that I'm talking about. is from 2006, a movie called Altered. 
Yeah. Okay. It's a sci-fi horror film about this group of guys. They're seeking revenge on the alien creatures that abducted them 15 years earlier and basically ruined their lives in a lot of ways. It starts off with this hunt in the woods where you've got Duke, Otis, and Cody. They're hunting this alien. They end up capturing it in a very tense scene. The alien ends up with its foot caught in a bear trap that they had set to catch it. Like they'd been out there earlier. They've been trying to catch this thing for years. And they set these bear traps. Well, at the same time, um, who was it? I want to say it's uh, Duke. He gets his foot caught in one of them too. So they're face to face about maybe 20, 25 feet apart from each other. The alien pulling itself closer to get to him, him trying to reach his rifle before the alien gets there. So you got this really tense scene right off the bat nice. with this alien. Uh, anyway, they do eventually capture it. They throw it into their van and they drive off to uh, the house, uh, a house owned by Wyatt. Okay. Wyatt was one of the group. What happened was over a decade ago, Wyatt and these three, along with Cody's brother, Timmy, were on a hunting trip when they were abducted by aliens and subjected to tests. Duke, Otis, and Cody, they were released right away. They didn't have what the aliens were looking for. Wyatt and Timmy were on board this ship, whatever. They were part of this ordeal for several hours after that. Timmy died as a result. He did not survive this. Wyatt, he was the stronger of the two. They ended up releasing him a couple counties over stark naked. Okay. Nobody believed their story, of course. Now, as a result, Cody was imprisoned for several years. He was accused of killing his own brother, and he was thrown in jail because nobody believed the alien story. Okay. Wyatt, after this happened, he withdrew from his friends. He's like, I, I can't deal with this anymore. I got to, you know, what happened to me was, was messed up, and I, I'm having a hard time dealing with it. He turned his back on his friends. He hasn't seen them in years. The first time he's seen them in a long time is when they pulled up in front of his house and got out and dragged this alien into his, into his, into his work area. Okay, so now he's dealing with that. He also has a girlfriend living with him, played by Catherine Mangan. Um who ends up getting pulled into this whole thing as well. Now, aside from the fact that it kicks off so well in the middle of the woods, it's a very great scene, not very great, a very good scene in the, in the middle of the woods, okay, where they're hunting this thing. Like I said, you have that showdown between uh, Duke and the alien. From that point forward, 90% of it takes place at Wyatt's house, okay? But despite that, it still keeps the suspense going. Okay, the alien does everything it can to try to break out of this. Okay, and at one point, obviously, it does. Well, how okay? is the look of the alien, Doc? That's oh, something I've been wondering. It's it's actually very good. Okay. okay, you don't see it much at first, but then later on, you do see it all the time, and it doesn't lose any of its effectiveness. At least it didn't for me. Nice, so kind okay? of creepy, and it's and it's convincing. Exactly, as well. and it's and it's angry. Okay. Oh man. It's it's always angry. It's oh. and it's clever. It's the smartest it's the smartest person in the room, not a person, but it's the smartest being in the room at any given moment. I love it. Okay. 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 Um and there's a, there's a really good scene where it ends up running into a bedroom and um it's anybody who's seen this movie will know what scene I'm talking about. He ends up um doing something to one of the characters that you're not going to forget. It's very memorable. Okay. It does even get into a little bit of, you know, the, there's a mystery there. Like, like it comes to find out why it can sense from this alien that they're as afraid of him 
not anybody else, of him. The alien is, a, is afraid of Wyatt as he is of the alien. And he's like, why is that? You know, what, what's going on here? What did they do to me? What did they see in me that scared them so much? And the movie does sort of expand on that a little bit, too. So they've got that sort of mystery running underneath it as well. The, the creature effects are very good. It's a take on the little green men stereotype, but a very good take on it. Okay. And there's no humor. I mean, there, this movie has hardly any humor in it at all. Okay. This is just a straight up boom. Um, nice. You know, sort of uh, intense from start to finish horror sci-fi movie. Dead serious. And dead serious. And it is, <laughs> for me, it, it was it was just, it was excellent. I, I really enjoyed it. This is my second time seeing this one. Uh, and it, it was even better than I had originally remembered it. But again, an eight. And I say this one is, is worth buying. Uh, nice. And as apparently it seems like Eduardo Sanchez has something. I mean, he has something there where he's, yeah. you know, I'd of the say two. So. I'd say so. I mean, if you're looking over this guy's work, and and let's be honest, if we're all being honest, I mean, I think most of us appreciated the Blair Witch Project back in I 1999 when we yes. first saw it, right? And I, and I still like it. I understand where the criticisms come against it. I know, like, you and Tara Tovey, um, I remember you weren't too big on it when you had re-reviewed it for um, Horror Movie Podcast. Uh, not Horror Movie Podcast, Weekly Horror yeah, I, di- I didn't actually get to revisit it for that. That was him and Bill Shetty. But yeah, That's I mean, right. That's right. especially Terry Toby was saying that not a whole lot happens in the movie. Right. But, See, was- but I, it, it got, when I first saw that movie, yeah. it definitely scared me. I mean, I saw it on, on video. I saw it on DVD. I didn't see it in the theater. I did not catch that one in the theater. <laughs> but I saw it on DVD and it was it yeah. was. Getting them. I mean, it's like it was one of the first found footage, and I think that definitely it could be the first found footage I saw. Maybe it wasn't. Well, no, Cannibal Holocaust obviously yeah. had that same, but it wasn't. Cannibal Holocaust wasn't hundred percent found footage. See, I I saw it at um, a drive-in that was surrounded by woods. So oh, wow. so that was intense. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I could definitely see that. But obviously, the, this guy knows what he's doing. You know, Eduardo Sanchez. This guy knows what he's doing, and. He was able to, you know, altered is good, and I definitely want to see Lovely Molly now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and I, now it. I, I definitely want to see the Bigfoot movie. Oh yeah, exists. Yeah, that's you, you really should. Excellent. Okay. Yeah, so, I look for. I do look forward to seeing that. But you're saying altered from 2006 is an eight out of ten, and you're saying absolutely buy it. Absolutely. Okay. Hi, this is Jay of the Dead's Blue Moon Zombie Reviews, where I review one zombie film for the Zombie Reckoning Podcast every once in a blue moon. Tonight, I'm reviewing a film made in 1987 called Zombie Death House. It's also known as Death House on IMDb. This movie was directed by John Saxon. You'd probably recognize Saxon as an actor because he's actually been in like 194 different movie and television roles, including A Nightmare on Elm Street, where he played Lieutenant Donald Thompson. And he was also in one of my favorite guilty pleasure horror movies, which is From Dusk Till Dawn. Anyway, Saxon cast himself in Zombie Death House as the colonel, who's the kind of cliched, ruthless military leader. Here's the premise of the flick. When a special forces war veteran is framed for murder by a mob boss, 
He's sentenced to death row at Townsend State Prison, where a maniac military leader is injecting an experimental virus into the inmates. Okay, and we all know where that goes. <laughs> so, it's kind of a familiar premise. You've got the old military super soldier experiment that goes awry. And uh, first of all, there are two things that the horror fans should know about Zombie Death House. And number one is, this is technically not a true zombie flick, meaning that those purists out there could argue that these monsters aren't actually zombies. Now, I personally don't get hung up on that, but just so you know, this is essentially an 80s infected movie. And the zombies in this movie aren't really dead either, but for you traditionalists, they are slow and they are flesh-eating. However, these zombies have super strength. They can actually toss people several feet through the air. The second thing you should know about this movie is that it's like a poor man's Day of the Dead by Romero. Now, Day is my personal favorite Romero dead flick, so I actually see this as the most interesting aspect of Zombie Death House, but I don't get the sense that this movie is a blatant ripoff because it, you know, it's only a couple years later that this came out. I actually see it as an homage or kind of a fan's tribute to the Romero film. For instance, it's set in a prison, so that's another thing that drew me to this movie because it's an amalgam of these three favorite things of mine where it's a zombie movie, it's a prison movie, and it's a Day of the Dead tribute. And so this prison setting is very similar to the bunker that we see in Day of the Dead. And there's even a tunnel for the escapee convicts to go through. And so there's like a tunnel in Day of the Dead. And to avoid spoilers with Day, I'm not going to name all the parallels, but that's one reason why it's fun to watch this movie is to pick out all these connections between the two films. But here's the problem, and there's actually more than one problem. There are many problems. First of all, it takes 27 minutes into the movie to even talk about or hint that there are going to be zombies. And then it takes 41 minutes total to even get to any full-blown zombie attacks. And the special forces protagonist guy who starts out pretty tough is actually relegated to a mere extra. I mean, he's like... <laughs> His role is just diminished as the film goes. And there are uh, tons of problems with the script, uh, such as they use this weird voiceover and narration to make really important transitions in the film. It's as if they forget to actually shoot these in the first place and like they were watching the finished product and they're like, okay, well, we better plug this in so it makes sense to get from point A to point B and so forth. This is going to sound weird to you, but if I were recommending this movie to someone just like me, I would tell that someone with my sensibilities to rent it because of the Day of the Dead parallels. And by the way, it's much more of a tribute to Day of the Dead than the abominable remake from 2008. I freaking hate that movie. But anyway, to me, Zombie Death House certainly has its charms. But honestly, for most horror fans out there, I can't in good conscience recommend it. And I have to rate this movie a 4.5 out of 10. And I just have to say, avoid it. Well, that's it for this Blue Moon Zombie review. This has been Jay of the Dead podcasting from Salt Lake City. On behalf of the Zombie Reckoning podcast, this is Jay of the Dead signing off. Okay, now we're getting into the top five. Now we've been going a while here, so I'll try and move it a little quicker here. Number five, uh, it's a movie. It, it really what it is. This one just caught me because of the approach they took. It's a short. It's only forty some minutes, like forty seven minutes long. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's the Call of Cthulhu from two thousand five. It's based on the H.P. Lovecraft story, mm -hmm. the same name. But what's so interesting about this is the story came out in the nineteen twenties. 
So the filmmaker, uh, Andrew Lehman, said, okay, I'm going to make this in the style of a 1920s silent movie. It's black and white. There's no dialogue. And it is presented as if it was, you know, like along the lines of, of what you would expect to see in uh, Nosferatu, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, with the title cards and everything. Right, but as That's, you said, it was released in 2005, it's right? It's a 2005 movie yeah, okay, made cool. in the style of a 1920s silent film. Very cool. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, and it's about, you know, anyone who's familiar with the story, I'm not as big, I'm not as big an H.P. Lovecraft fan. I, I, I shouldn't say that. I'm not familiar with H.P. Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. Okay. I haven't delved into his work as much as I have, say, like Edgar Allan Poe. Right. I'm a bit, I really enjoy reading Poe. I've not read as much of um, H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, but anyway, this guy, while looking through some papers that belonged to his great uncle, this guy, uh, nobody really has a name in this, Matt, uh, played by Matt Foyer. Um, he becomes obsessed with this strange cult that's centered on this mythological creature named Cthulhu. But the deeper he looks into this mystery, it takes him to different areas of the world even. He gets even more confused. It becomes more confusing. And, uh, you know, he realizes that as he's putting this together, he might be losing his sanity, which is what happened to his great uncle as well. His great uncle became obsessed by this, had all these papers, all these documents he collected, and he ended up losing his mind looking into this as well. Um, stylistically, it, it does work. Okay. It does capture the look and feel of a silent era motion picture. There are sometimes a, a few, um, uh, a few times where you're like, okay, it looks a little more modern now, but overall, you know, it has that sort of bombastic score. What? Um, I, I just want to talk to you about something here. Like that is a very, uh, even though it's interesting to us as big film nerds, that's a very brave choice to make oh, a yeah. modern film, especially like a horror film, and try to go for that kind of style. <laughs> That's gutsy. It is. Now, one thing I'll mention, too, it was, um, I think, co-produced or at least um, some, I think, funded partially or at least distributed by the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. Okay. Okay, so they did get behind this this movie. Um but you're right. It is. I mean, to, 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 to attempt something like this in this day and age. Yeah, that's risky. Uh, it is. It is risky. And for me, it paid off. I mean, I was engaged by this. I mean, you have um, – it does pay homage to, like, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. For me, there, there, it's, it, it, it pays homage to that movie because there, there are scenes that – where, in, like, one character has his night has is having nightmares. This this guy and he's being, you know, mm -hmm. the lead's great uncle. It's a flashback. He's interviewing this guy who's having these nightmares. And in these nightmares, you have these sharp angles, these this sort of yes. surreal atmosphere, and it's lifted almost directly out of what you would think, you know, of something you'd see in the cabinet of Doctor Caligari. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they really are very creative. The dream sequences are very creative. The movie's grand finale, though where the sailors end up face-to-face -face with Cthulhu. That's, to me, it's the payoff, and it really is a good scene. It's presented, again, like in 1920s, with special effects as they would have been in the 1920s, but it still works. Well, I see from the poster art on IMDb, which is in color, by the way, mm -hmm. that being on there is pretty creepy looking. It's pretty cool. Yes, yes that is what the, the Cthulhu is. Okay. And again, I, I, I'm not as big into the writings of H.P. Lovecraft, 
but I did want to check some of his, you know, I wanted, always wanted to check out a movie. And this was one that I had on my radar because I'd heard about it on a previous podcast. And I, I came, I, I don't know if it was horror, et cetera, which is one I listen to all the time or, or a different one. But I did hear them talking about this one. And I did want to check it out. For people who have hard, a hard time with older horror movies, you might have old, a hard time with this one for the very same reasons. Okay. Silent, black and white. You know, you're not going to get tons of gore or big jump scares, especially with H.P. Lovecraft. He seems to be more of uh, in setting a mood than he is in um, like doing the real strong. And again, I can't say for sure. I'm not familiar with his work. But at least this story, that seems to be what he's going for. And as a writer, uh, he's kind of a haunter that way, where he, he'll give you a concept that you stew over and that you think about and kind of hangs with you and haunts you that way. So he's he's a lot more... It, at least my impression of him is, is he's more of a psychological scarer. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's the impression I got watching this movie. Now, now David had left a comment um, on this one. He said um, he does he does read Lovecraft. Um, and I thank you, David, for coming out. I mean, you left a lot. You left. He, he came out. He left comments on several of the movies that I reviewed um, during. And David's brilliant. Yes, he is. He, yes. he definitely is, and, and he 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 hadn't seen this one either. But he, you know, he was going to definitely check it out. And I think it's it's definitely worth it's worth watching. Again, it's not a, lo- a big commitment of time. It's it's under an hour. It's forty seven minutes long. Mm-hmm. Okay, but it's very well made and it's very interesting. It's just it's very interesting to see this modern take on a silent movie. So yeah, I'd give it an eight. Again, I, I'm still in the eight uh, territory with these. And it's worth picking up. It might be a little harder to find. It's not really that readily available. Well, I see right now that if you have Amazon Prime, you can currently just stream it. Oh, there you go. There you go. That's the way to go then. Yeah. Yeah, that's the way to go. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now we're getting up to where we might start getting into the, the higher ratings. Number four, we have a movie called Eden Lake. I'm glad you're reviewing this because I tell you what, I have been so curious about this movie since 2008, since it came out. I've been wanting to see it. It's always been on my list and I just have never gotten around to it. So I can't wait to hear what you say. Okay. Well, it's, 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 it's an ultra violent survival tale Mm -hmm. has a lot in common with deliverance, a little bit, even in common with Texas chainsaw. Uh, it's about this middle-class couple. They end up fighting for their lives against these, like this gang of, of young hoods. Okay. But to be honest with you, this is also a monster movie because one of the, one of these kids is a real, he, he for me, he qualifies as a monster. Okay. No, yeah. You know, okay. It's, it's about a school teacher. Her name is Jenny. Her boyfriend, Steve played by Michael Fassbender. As a matter of fact. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, which is very interesting. Yeah, this is going back to 2008. And both of them, Kelly Riley <laughs> plays Jenny. Uh, Michael Fassbender plays Steve, her boyfriend. Because he's huge to, now. I mean, he's. Oh, a, he's big now. Yeah, yeah exactly. So that's funny. Like, he's a big actor now. Um, but they head to Eden Lake, uh, this, this spot, sign of in the middle of nowhere. It's set in England, obviously. Um, and they, you know, they want to sort of relax for the weekend. They, they, they get to the beach, they set up a tent there, but soon after they get there, they have a run in with this, uh, this, this hood named, uh, Brett, this, this sort of young punk and his friends. Uh, and they're, they're really just doing everything they can to make their stand up pleasant one. And Brett, especially, you know, um, you know, they, they like, uh, Jenny's very good looking girl. And at one scene, at one point they walk past her and 
Brett just whips it out. And he's just like waving it at her as he's walking past. I mean, and they don't cut away either. They show it in this movie. You know, you you, you see it. Um, however, uh, so they're gone for a little bit. And then the, the couple goes back into town. And then they come to find out. It's, it's really it's kind of an unsettling scene. They're in a, a, a diner. And, um, you know, she's, uh, she's like, oh, he's talking to the waitress. And he's like, oh, we, you know, we've... These kids, you know, and she's like, "Oh yeah, they're they're really something around here." And he's like, "Well, yeah, they've uh, they did something, you know." And she just looks at it and she goes, "Not my kids," you know. You get the feeling that one of these kids is hers, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, that this is one of those small towns where oh, boy. everybody sort of knows everyone, and you might want to watch what you say. Okay. <laughs> right. Um, but thing where it escalates is when. They're out, uh, they're down um, in the lake, they're going for a swim, Steve and uh, Jenny. They come back, and what it was is he's getting ready to propose to her, okay? He gets it all set up, he comes out, he's about to pull the ring out, he's like, you'll never guess what I found in the water, when she says, where's our bag? Well, that's what had his wallet, his car keys, everything. He realized it's gone, they run up the hill, the car is gone, turns out Brett and his pal swiped it and were taking it out for a joyride. Okay. They do confront them. They do find them. Like there's a scene where they come bursting out of the woods in his car, almost run him over. Brett sort of smiles at him and they take off into the woods. They have to track him down. They do find him at night. They, they find out where they are and they have a, there's a confrontation that escalates and something happens at which point the movie it's then it's on <laughs> from that moment on. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it gets crazy. That's what I've heard. Um, I've heard it's pretty brutal. Absolutely. Now, the, the two leads are good, but they do some stupid things in this movie. Okay. I'm talking, you know, Stephen and Jenny. One in particular, he's going to confront these kids, you know, because they, um, they flattened his tire is what it was uh, or originally. The first thing he did was they gave him a flat tire. They put a bottle under his tire. As soon as he pulled away, he got a flat tire. Okay. He's going to confront them. He walks into the house where one of them lives. Okay, and he's walking through the house, saying, "Is anybody here? Is anybody here?" As he and he goes, even goes up, like he gets to the point where he's deep in this house. All of a sudden, the father comes home, who's just this sort of angry guy, comes barging into the house. He gets scared and runs upstairs to hide. Well, then he makes some noise. The father's like, "Are you up there, Brett?" Like it's it turns out to be the kid Brett's house. He's not got to figure a way out of this house because how's he going to explain this? exactly yeah. to this father you know and you're like dude what the hell are you thinking <laughs> why would you walk into that house <laughs> but they do things like that the characters do some things that you sort of question as it goes on so if there's a weakness to it it's that that these that these two characters for as intelligent as they are they do some stupid things um but anyway where it really the but for me even with michael fassbender in it for me the standout performance is by jack o'connell who plays this guy brett I mean, he's a psychopath, and he loves the violence. He treats it as if it was a game. All of the other kids with him get to the point where they're sickened by it. They don't want a part of it anymore. But Brett, they don't want to say no to him either because he's that. He's like he's like the dominant. Yeah, he's scary. You know? mm -hmm. and, and he's controlling. He makes them do things that they would not otherwise do. And it gets to the point where you realize Brett is not going to stop. And these kids are not going to stop him. And it gets really, it gets really bad. I mean, this is, it's not, 
this is not an upbeat movie. This is not a fun horror movie. Well, how, okay. how would you say it compares to something like Wolf Creek, for example? You know what? I would say it's along the same lines as Wolf Creek. Okay. As is far it, as the brutality. Is it equally as brutal or not as brutal or more I would brutal? Say, I would say equally to more. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I would put it in that category. Okay. I would say even though that you don't get as many victims uh well no you do i mean this this is there's violence here and there's it's it's not pleasant i mean the the the, one of the most disturbing scenes is they have steve tied up and i'm not gonna go too deep into it but uh well yeah i guess i can because it does happen about the midway point and there's a lot that happens after this scene but they got steve tied up and brett convinces all everybody there to stab him once just pick a place and stab him Oh, One guy carves into the back of his arm because he doesn't really want to do it. Another kid, he's trying to impress Brett. Boom. And it's like a box opener. It's not even a blade. It's a box opener pff, right in the right in the gut. And all of a sudden, you can hear Steve coughing like he's starting to lose air, like he got hit in the lung. Wow. Okay. And it it's unflinching. If I had to pick one word, I'd say for this movie, it's unflinching. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And it is very disturbing. And I don't want to go to – I'm not going to give away spoilers. Right. But don't expect to walk away from this thing feeling good. Sure. It's right. not going to happen. It's not an uplifting film. <laughs> not an uplifting film at all. Right. Okay. And what really makes it so, for me, what really worked for me is that there are kids like this out there. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, 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 and you see this and you're like, man, I hope I never run into anybody like this kid. Yeah. Psycho. And it's, it's, it is a, it's a great performance, but you want to bash this kid's face in with a mallet. I right. think you hate him <laughs> as the movie goes on. Um, but And that's because the actor was so good. I mean, he did such a good job, a job at portraying this character. This is an 8.5. Okay, and this wow. is one that I think is, is worth adding to the collection. Here's another comparison. Um, so how would you say this compares with that film Kidnapped, that home invasion one? Which one's which one's more brutal? Oh boy, kidnapped has a lot of the brutality happens at a certain area of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, still, I mean, what ha- you know, even what happened transpires before that is is not pleasant. Um, you know, it's interesting because thinking of both movies now side by side, I still might give the edge to Eden Lake, or at least say it's the same. Mm-hmm. But I think I would still give the edge to Eden Lake. Wow. Okay. Uh, that gives yeah. me a, an idea. Yeah, because when we did our way back in, it was like 2010 or 2011, and you came on the Considering the Sequels podcast, and we discussed mm-hmm. extreme cinema. When I was researching that, um, this was one of the films that came up in my research, and you know I've been trying to get around to it. but Oh, it's it, it belongs in that category. Okay. There's no doubt about it. It belongs there, and... Um, like I said, just don't be expected to, to you know, right. be, do a dance walking away from this thing. It's not going to happen. Yeah, so it's um, Eden Lake from 2008. Doc says it's an 8.5, and he says buy it. Absolutely. Okay. Okay, takes us to number three. We're getting down to the end here. All right, and this is a remake, okay? Mm-hmm. But it's a remake that um, was co-written and produced by Guillermo del Toro. Yes. All right. It is from uh, 2010. It's Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Now, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark 
uh, was originally a 1973 television movie. It starred uh, Kim Darby. And I liked it. I, I'm a fan of the original. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's about these um, – well, okay. Anyway, just to sort of set up this movie. Okay. Ten-year-old um, Sally, played by an actress, Bailey Madison. She goes to live with her father, uh, Guy Pierce. Alex is his name, played by Guy Pierce. He's his architect. And him and his girlfriend, uh, played by Katie Holmes, they're renovating this old mansion that belonged to this reclusive artist all these years earlier. Okay. Well, one day, um, you know, Sally's in the basement with her father, and she notices this um, sort of uh, – not a fireplace, like an ash pit type of thing that's been bolted shut. But she hears voices coming from it, okay? Things like, you know, <laughs> Sally, Sally, will your friends open up, let us out, things like that. You know, I don't, I can't, and I'm paraphrasing here. And by the way, that's like mm-hmm. when the, the, the Turkish um, emperor always like emails you for money or whatever. Yes, it's yes, like exactly. Never, ever, ever do that. If something never is do, in your yeah. vent saying open up, don't open it. Exactly. <laughs> right? Now, one of the reasons that they, that they have this girl do it is because she's, um, she's very depressed. She's very alone. Okay. She feels as if nobody wants her. She feels as if her mother has dumped her on the father and that the father's starting a new life with, with, with Katie Holmes, but the character's name's Kim. Um, so she feels like she's really not wanted. So when the voices are telling her things, the voices are telling her things like, you're not wanted. We'll, we'll be your friends, things like that. Okay. Well, she does get a wrench. She does open it up. It turns out there are dozens of these, Small creatures. I mean, these things are tiny, okay? But they're not nice. <laughs> and when they get together, they can do some real damage, okay? Um, now, they can't be in the light. They have to stay in the shadows, these creatures. But they do follow Sally around. Because what happens is every time they're released, we come to find out they have to take somebody back with them, mm-hmm. okay? They have to claim somebody. And the person they set on is Sally because for them, a delicacy is children's teeth. Okay, Mm. that's what they eat to them. That's the best food they could possibly get is eating children's teeth. Wow. (laughs) All right. But anyway, um, disturbing, right? Yes. And (laughs) it's Sally immediately regrets. Obviously, she tries to tell people about it. Um, At one point, um, uh, uh, Kim's uh, who is it? Who did I say? Uh, Kim. Yes. Katie Holmes, character finds a dress has been torn to shreds. Of course, they blame Sally. She didn't have anything to do with it. But. There was a change made to this one, okay? The character of Sally being a young girl was a, was a change. It was Kim Darby in the original who let them out. And she just did it like, hey, this is closed up. This could be a nice fireplace type thing. That's why she opened it up. She didn't hear the voices originally. Um, but they changed it to this young girl. Now, Del Toro does have an affinity for putting children in his movies and doing it effectively. And putting and, them in peril. <laughs> and putting them in peril. You yes. think of Pan's Labyrinth, The Devil's Backbone. All these movies have that theme, The Orphanage. Mm-hmm. You know, all of these movies are, are along those lines, and that's something continues with this movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. One of the strengths of this is the young girl playing Sally. She is awesome. She is absolutely phenomenal. You know, and, and even in instances where, you know, you, you give kids a little bit of slack and you say, for a child actor, that was good. You know, you sort of qualify it with that. Right. I'm not even going to qualify this. It was that good of a performance that she gives. Nice. Okay. Nice. She, you, you feel the heartbreak her character is feeling, is feeling early on and you feel the intense fear. She's part of a jump scare where she first sees – when she first sees this creature, 
and it works. It's a really strong jump scare. Okay. And there's a late scene when she's in the bathtub that really works well as uh, also, um, she's a big reason why this works, but then you have the little monsters themselves scamper along the ground. They're like little mice. You hear them running. They're like little mice. And they're going after Sally every chance they get. You know, at first it's sort of innocent enough. They break into her room. Two of them are hiding behind this teddy bear of hers. They're pressing it so that it talks, you know, like I love you. And they're moving the arms type of thing. Okay. <laughs> Almost to amuse her a little bit yeah. to say, okay, here, you know, it's not so bad, but it, that doesn't last for long. They become a lot more sinister. Um, there's a scene where Alex is looking through a keyhole. Okay. There are some <laughs> monsters on the other side of it, these little things. They try to push this large needle through to get his eye. Wow. All right. Well, he's looking through. It doesn't work because he pulls away just in time, like he stands up just in time. Um, and they're dangerous when they work together. There's one scene where they go after this, this one character, and they're doing it in conjunction, like they're doing it as a group. And it's worse because you're getting stabbed 10 times, <laughs> whereas normally you might just you get stabbed 10 times by one person. You're getting stabbed 10 times, like within a couple seconds, you this, know, this this sounds like the kind of movie you show your children and then they're scarred for life. Right. Yes, that, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> you show us to your kid. It would scar them for life, especially with the main character being a young girl. Right. You know? Yeah. And they're these little um, creatures. I mean, that's what kids are afraid of. And with Del Toro behind it, you can pretty much assure, yes, these creatures are CGI, but it's flawless. Mm -hmm. I and mean, it's, it's practically flawless. He is an artist. Absolutely. And, and I mean that in the highest sense of the word with just praise for his artistry. I mean, he that guy is so talented. He's got an Absolutely. eye for creating art on screen and he does not he does not direct this movie it's directed by someone named troy nixie yeah he's the screenwriter for this right he's a screenwriter and the producer and it's got his stamp all over yeah it. you know his fingers were all over this thing huh? absolutely so uh, this one is another 8.5 for me definitely nice. pick this one up as much as i am a fan of the original and i am a fan of the original don't be afraid of the dark i do like it i think this movie actually improves upon it well, here's a question for you, Doc, that the listeners might find really valuable. You know how sometimes, like, once you've seen a film, you've seen it. Like, for example, Let the Right One In versus mm -hmm. Let Me In. So, if the listeners out there had not seen either film, the original or this remake from 2010, which one would you recommend that they see first? Okay, if you are if you want if you're going to watch both, I would say watch the original first because this remake changes things up enough so that it takes it in a very new direction. Mm -hmm. Um a much different direction than the original because I think if you do it reverse, if I think if you watch the 2010 first, you go back to the 73 one and I think it's going to be a disappointment. Yeah, but if you're only going to watch one then If you're only going to watch one, yeah. I, it's, and I don't normally do this. I would say watch the 2010. Mm -hmm. I would say watch that one over the, the 73 TV movie. And I, that's not a slight of, of the original in any way. I just happen to think that with the changes made this time around, it did improve. It improved it. Well, and, and you've got some top-notch actors. I mean, Guy Pierce is yes. tremendous. So I love seeing people like him with some some real gravitas, some weight mm -hmm. to their performances. I love seeing people like that in horror. And, you know, you don't always get that. 
No, you don't. And Guy Pierce has been so good. I mean, L.A. Confidential, he was great. Mm-hmm. Um, I always go back to this one movie that he was in. It was a, and it's from Australia, which is his native country, called uh, The Proposition. Just oh, yeah. Just a terrific Western. Western, yeah. With, with him and Ray Winstone and John Hurt has a small role in that. I love I'm, – I'm going to definitely cover that at some point for the blog as well because that movie just blew me away. And, and of course, he was in Memento, which – Yes. It's just a brilliant film. And in um, like a Houdini type film called Death Defying Axe, I think. Oh, I don't um, think I've seen that one. I haven't either. And it's pretty obscure, but I've always been curious about it. So if, okay. if, you, if, you, ever, if you see it before I do, let me know what you think. Yeah, I will. And even, even Katie Holmes. I mean, yeah, she's got that sort of Tom Cruise, the relationship with Tom Cruise sort of hanging. I mean, they're not together anymore. Right. but she's, um, And it was a very strange relationship. Yes. I mean, you'd see interviews where she's just sitting there smiling, almost as if she's been drugged, you know, <laughs> while Tom Cruise sort of sort of spews his uh, uh, Scientology. But she's she's um, lovely little Ohio girl. Yeah. Oh yeah, and and she's and and she was in another um, genre f- uh, movie directed by Sam Raimi, The Gift. Mm-hmm. You know, and then played a, a pretty significant part in that. Uh, well, at least a, a part, a very memorable part in The Gift. Mm-hmm. Uh, and was was quite good in that too. I mean, you also think of her not not just Tom Cruise. She was part of. The, she came up with the Dawson's Creek, you know, and, and that's where she really got her start. But yeah, so I mean, it, for for people, you know, don't be afraid of the dark. The 2010. I mean, you've got some actors in this, absolutely, yeah. and the young girl playing Sally. Yeah, Bailey Madison. Bailey Madison. I think now she's approaching like 16 or 17 years old. Keep an eye on her. She, she's associated with Disney in a lot of ways. Now, and in this one, as good as Guy Pierce is and as good as Katie Holmes is, I still think the young girl is, for me, I was just very impressed with her. Stole the show, huh? Uh, for me, she did. And some of this, in the scene she was in, she stole the show. That's cool. Definitely. So they had an 8.5, one to put in the collection, especially if you're, again, it's not directed by Del Toro, but you can tell from from right out of the box that this is, it's a Del Toro movie. Little Beastly Freaks type of flick there. Uh, yeah, and I think you would enjoy it too, Jazz. Have you seen I guess you haven't seen that one yet. No, I haven't actually. I it's okay. yeah, I, well, I do I really want to see it. Oh, it's worth it it's I think you would enjoy it. Okay, cool. That's cool. Okay. Now next one up is a movie that disturbed me <laughs> pretty it really was a disturbing movie for <laughs> yeah. me. It it's from 2009 called The Loved Ones. Oh, yeah. This okay. one has had so much buzz over the years. I'd, I'd be surprised if people out there haven't seen it yet. I mean, yeah, haven't the, you been hearing about this for a long time? I have. And that's one of the reasons I had it on this list is that I wanted to check out because I've been hearing about it as well. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now, I'm the, I don't have a problem, as you know, with violence in movies. Mm-hmm. It does not bother me. I can – like like Eden Lake, I was able to sit through that. But there was a moment in The Loved Ones where I'm like, okay, I've had enough. Okay? <laughs> it's a great movie. It really is. It's tense. It, it gets under your skin. Hardcore. All right. A- exactly. And it brings you to the edge of your seat countless times. The scenes of brutality are relentless, and they're so extreme. To me, anyway, I had to look away. And it's not even that they're, they're extreme. What it is is, to set it up, it's the last day of school, and Lola played by Robin McLevy, asks her classmate Brent to go to the end-of-year dance with her. But Brent already has a date. He has his girlfriend, Holly, who he's going with. The problem is Lola isn't somebody you say no to. 
at one point, um, Brent, he's out and about. Um, you know, he has this whole backstory that I'll get into in a minute. Um, but he's uh, basically Lola's father, you know, uh, does the whole chloroform over the mouth, knocks him out. Okay. Dragged off to uh, the Lola Stone is her name, dragged off to the Stone homestead and which is decorated now to look as if it's a dance hall. And when he wakes up, he's tied to a chair at, at a, like what would be the dinner table. And there's Lola and her father, Lola in her, you know, in her dance, in her dress. And they're going to have this little dance there because she's going to have a date with him, whether he likes it or not. Okay. (laughs) Brent does everything he can to escape, but the more he struggles to free himself, the harsher the punishment that they dish to him gets. Okay. Part of what made it so difficult is that, you know, in a lot of these films, okay, the, the character who is suffering in some way or another has done something maybe to warrant it. Okay. You know, it's okay. Maybe and not always. It's not always the case. But every now and again, especially if it's like a girl who feels she's been wronged and almost like a revenge type flick, mm-hmm. the guy might have had it coming. All right. Right. It's not not the case in this movie. Okay. <laughs> right. This guy, Brent, is a decent guy. When she asked him out, he was not rude. He was not anything. Oh, I'm sorry. I already have a girlfriend. I'm going with her. Boom. End of story. Okay. Yeah. He does have a little laugh with his girlfriend when they're together about it. But it's not. He's and, and not only that, he's a victim himself. The movie started off with him driving down a road with his father. He's driving a car. His father's the, the um, passenger, and they're, they're like joking back and forth with each other. All of a sudden, they notice this bloodied young guy in the middle of the road, out in the middle of nowhere. Brent loses control of the car, crashes it. His father's killed. So he's dealing with that. It's him and his mother, and his mother's having mm-hmm. a hard time with it. He's dealing with that he's responsible for his father's death. He's yeah. a victim already. I often say that horror movies happen to people who deserve it least or who need it least because they have so many other awful things going yes. on. Yeah. And that's what happens with this guy. Mm-hmm. All right. That, and, that, and that's what makes it so difficult. Now, what they do to him, I'm not going to go into everything, but the first thing they do is they inject, I want to say it's bleach or something into his, into his neck, basically destroying his voice box mm-hmm. so that he can't scream. He can, he can barely talk. That's the first thing they do. Um, he does at one point early on escape, okay? Well, he gets caught, obviously, because it's early in the movie. And I, you look at this running time, you figure, okay, because you're looking, you think, thank God, get out of there. You look <laughs> at the running time, you're like, okay, he's probably going to get caught. And mm. he does. So what they do is the father, to keep him from doing it again, they nail his feet to the ground with steak knives. Okay? <laughs> yes. So that now he can't move. Okay. And now Lola is every bit of psychotic. Okay, he's trying now. This is before the escape. He's trying to get out of there. So he he like says as much as he can while she's like sort of straddling him that he has to go to the bathroom. All right. He's just trying to get loosened from this chair so he can try to make his escape. So she's like, oh, you have to go to the bathroom. Okay. well, she unzips his fly, pulls it out and holds a glass underneath it and says, go ahead. Now, the father's getting a little disturbed by this because then she starts talking to us like, oh, maybe if I kiss it or something, you know, starts getting like sort of – there's this underlying sexual tension between the daughter and the father mm. that's unspoken, but it's there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, she's like, come on. And now, of course, how's he going to go in that situation? 
even if he did honestly have to go to the bathroom, which you're pretty sure he didn't, he's just looking for a way to get his hands untied. How are you going to go in that situation? Yeah, shy kidneys right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, she says, okay, you've got 10 seconds or I'm going to have dad nail it to the chair. Oh, man. So that's the type of level that this thing's being pitched yeah. at the whole time. Yeah, you'd All be right? coming up with something, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, that's what this kid's going through. What happens to him? There's so many times you're like, oh, come on. L- break loose already. You know, and especially later on with what they're going to do to him, what they're going to do to basically incapacitate him for life. They're going to do something to him. And you're like, get away. And, and it just becomes so grueling because these things continue to happen to this kid as he's sitting there that, you know, even if he gets away, his life is pretty much destroyed. Oh, yeah. You know, that this, that there's really no coming back from this sort of trauma. All right. Yes. Now, Robin, especially that, that whole drill sequence, right? Yes. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's what I was sort of tiptoeing around (laughs) here. Right. I won't say anything else about it, but yes, that was what, yeah, exactly. The Robin McLeavy is really good as Lola. I mean, she plays a psychotic really well. She's another one you want to bash your face in (laughs) as this movie's going along. Right. Um, But really strong also was John Brumpton. He played the father. He's emasculated. I mean, he's basically, you know, it's not so much daddy's little girl as as he's daddy's, he's the little girl servant type, you know. Everything, his whole life is dedicated to doing what she wants. Mm -hmm. She's a spoiled little brat and he will do anything she wants because... I, there's a little bit, you get the feeling there's a little guilt there because he's sexually attracted to her. She puts the dress on while he's watching and you see him sort of, his eyes get wide, he wants to turn away, but sort of looking still. And there's a later scene where they end up dancing together and they're looking into each other's eyes. It's very uncomfortable. Yeah, it's twisted. Okay. Yeah. Very uncomfortable. Those two characters, they do, they're really strong and they work together well. But it's really how – it's uh, the writer-director was Sean Byrne, and it's how he ties it together before the movie's over. you know. Because at the same time, there's this unrelated side story where Brent's pal, his name is uh, Jamie, is taking a girl, Mia, to the dance. You see them go to the dance. You see Mia. She doesn't initially go in. You see them doing drugs together. You see them having sex together. Then they go home. Well, it turns out – that this was not just a random story, a side story of, okay, here are kids who made it to the dance. The whole, this whole thing is, it ties back into the whole Lola story. Mm. And how they tie it in, you're, it's like a big, like, uh, oh my God sort of moment when you realize this. Very okay, cool. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and at the same time, you have Brett's mother and girlfriend, who the girlfriend had said earlier on, I love you, and Brett didn't say it back. You know, and you know how that sort of awkwardness. Right. You know, well, after Brett's captured, she goes over to the house. They're trying to figure out what happened to him. Nobody knows what happened to him. This happened when he was off walking, trying to collect his thoughts, dealing once again with his father's death. And he was in the middle of nowhere and he got, you know, he got dragged off. So nobody knows where he could have possibly been or what happened to him. Um, she happens to come across the note he was going to give her that night that says, you're the, you're the one helping me keep things together. I love you. So they have that whole thing going on of the mother and the girlfriend trying to figure out what's happened to. Okay. This is a movie that I probably will watch again, but it's going to take a while. Right. Yeah. You okay. got to work up to it. <laughs> Absolutely. Because this is intense. <laughs> and hardcore. Hardcore. Hardcore and intense. Torture. And torture ex- flick. Exactly. Now, again, I don't, it's not, I wouldn't say it's as brutal as Eden Lake, 
but it's more disturbing because of the fact that it's happening to somebody who really had, there's no reason he's been put in this situation. Yeah. Other than a spoiled little girl didn't get what she wanted. Yeah. Okay. This is, this one is again, an 8.5. All right. It's approaching nine, but I'm going to stick with an 8.5 and I think it's worth adding to the collection. Yeah. I'm with you. That's usually um, not my kind of flick. Honestly, mm-hmm. I'm not into the torture stuff, but I mean, it's just extremely well done. I'd probably say about 8.52, and yeah, it's a buy because it's just, it's one of those novelties where if you want to freak somebody out, it comes over to your house, you can pop that in and. Oh, yeah, and, th- that'll work. <laughs> and take them on a ride, but yeah. And they might not come back. I mean, if it's, if it's somebody <laughs> you don't want to come, if it's, if it's like an annoying guest, you don't want to come back. I would say show them this one. Do a double feature of this in Eden Lake. I don't think they'll ever bother you again. <laughs> yeah, and what what's weird is um and, and this is just a very random coincidence, but uh so the the director, the writer director, Sean Byrne, that guy is also one of the um directors on that video documentary The Secret from two thousand six, which a lot of people really like. That's not horror at all, but um it's just funny mm-hmm. to me that a guy who would, because the whole premise of the secret is that, you know, if there's something that you want to come into your life, focus on it. So it's funny that a guy who would make a torture flick <laughs> would also subscribe to the secret because it's like, okay, does he want to be, you know, captive? So that's kind of weird. But yeah, so that's a Australian flick. And if you want the mentally... I'm trying to think of the politically correct term. If you want the the mentally challenged, the, uh, challenged. Yeah, the mentally challenged version of the loved ones, there's a film from 2008 called Otis, and it and it's not anywhere near the same. I mean, it's not really a torture flick, but it reminds the premises are are somewhat similar. And if you look at the cover to Otis from 2008. It's a very bizarre film. Really weird. I think I've talked about it before. I, yes. I learned about that from Midnight Quarry. And man, right, right. <laughs> it reminds me um, a little bit of the loved ones. Interesting. So, anyways. <laughs> okay, I've been really excited to talk about your number oh, one. because right. Number one. I also know where this came from, I think, why it's okay. on your list. Okay. This is a movie. Uh, this was, for me, the one that I just kept thinking about. I thought about this one more than any of the other films I watched during October. And I saw it early. I think I'd put this, this one was put out uh, in the first 10 days of October. I did this one and I just kept thinking about this movie. Mm-hmm. It's from 2003. It's called Dead End. Yes. Okay. Now, where do you think it, uh, I because I'll be honest, I don't remember. I'm so okay. curious now. No, I can tell you. I can tell you. So way back when you were on the Creepshire Feature Horror Show and you guys did the top 10 of the decade yes. of the aughts, um, this was on Greg Amortis's honorable mentions list, I believe. Uh, yeah, so it was one of the ones that he threw out there. That's probably where I ended up picking it up. Yeah. Because I always, whenever, the, whenever back then, whenever they'd bring up a movie like Bill Shetty, Greg Amores, any of those guys would bring up a movie I haven't seen, I'd want to pick it up and watch it. Mm-hmm. Same. Yeah. And that's, that's where I, I learned about it too. So it has always been on my list. And when I saw that it, you were going to be covering it, I'm like, that's it. I'm getting to it so we can talk about it. And it's currently streaming on Netflix Watch Instantly. Nice. Nice. Yeah. 
Okay, well, anyway, I'll, I'll set it up here. It's a French movie, which is interesting because it takes place in America with, with, uh, with uh, American actors. But it is a French movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Christmas Eve. Frank Harrington, played by Ray Wise, uh, is doing what he does every year. He's taking his family to visit the mother-in-law. But he's not too happy to be doing it this year. He's just, he's just ornery. He doesn't want to be doing this. He's arguing with his wife, Laura, played by Lynn Shay, um, who I can never see her. She's actually a very good actress. Yeah. But I could never see her without thinking of that brief role in Kingpin that she did at the beginning there as the as the landlord, as Woody Harrelson's landlord. I don't know if you ever saw Kingpin. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, like I, I messed up on her with a lot of different roles. Like she's yeah. there's it's just I I don't know. She bugs me in movies because I think of so many other things when I yeah, see her. Yeah, she was in what was that? Um Detroit Rock City, the movie about Kiss. She played the mother in that, yeah. uh, the sort of overly religious mother. So she's been a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, they're arguing, and they have two kids. They have a college student named Marion, a teenage son, Rick uh, Richard, um, and Marion's boyfriend's there, Brad. And they're all arguing with each other in the backseat. Or basically, Marion and Brad are arguing with uh, Richard. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Frank decides, instead of going the, the normal route on the highway, he goes on this sort of out-of-the-way uh, road, and while driving along, he falls asleep at the wheel, almost gets into a head-on collision with an oncoming car. But a little bit down the road, so that wakes him up, that gives him all a jolt. But a little bit down the road, he picks up this mysterious girl in white, who has a baby. And at that point, the movie takes a very strange turn, mm-hmm. uh, and it just continues on from there. Now, for me, this was a lot like an episode of The Twilight Zone. Oh yeah. You know, that's really what it felt like. Yeah. Um, and it, it's got a lot of plot twists. Okay. It keeps things interesting. Now, I had mentioned in my write-up that I did figure out the main twist before the halfway point. I knew what how it was going to end. Oh, really? I didn't know. They got me. Okay. Well, that's good. I'm glad they got you because I I figured it out. And you know what's funny? I put in the in their view you know, that um, it didn't matter, though. One of the things that worked about this movie is it didn't matter that I figured it out because the journey to get there is what kept it interesting. And these characters reveal little things about themselves. Absolutely. That keep it going. And just for the listeners, just so you know, I mean, the fact that we even let you in on the fact that there is um, a twist. I mean, there's there are lots of surprises, lots of twists and turns. So it's not a spoiler to say that there's a twist because... You know, most horror movies have a revelation, right? Or or several revelations. And so you'll get that from this movie. So don't yes, don't feel do. upset at us because we said that because it, it's um a really well done movie. Absolutely. And it's and just real quick before I get back into it, both David and Juan commented over on my blog about this one. Um uh, they both seen the movie. Um and David said, Yeah, he was able to predict the t- the twist early on as well. Heath said he thought there had to be more to it than that, so he felt a little let down by the ending. But other than that, he thought it was really well done. And again, like I said, the journey more important than the destination, and he was real impressed with Ray Wise. Whereas Juan, um, you know, I feel kind of bad. He said it seems he's not as smart as the rest of us because he commented after David because <laughs> he didn't see the end coming. I'm there with but it you, sounds, Juan. It sounds like with you, you didn't see the end coming either. Not and you know all. what? I almost wish I didn't see the end coming. <laughs> I think that would have been even better. I, I mean, I, I wished I didn't. So may, um, maybe what we should tell the listeners is, um, you know, don't try to think too far ahead in advance. Yes. Just let the movie happen to you as you watch it. Yes. Right. I, I would. I would agree with that. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and really, uh, the part of what keeps it going is the performances are, are really good. Ray Wise, um, who was so funny in Infestation, plays a different type of character here and does it great. Yes, he I does. mean, this guy really deserves a much bigger career than he's had. I mean, he is yeah. a gr- he's a really good actor. Yeah, and in this, and in this movie, yeah, I mean, I think he carries it honestly. Oh yeah, I agree. Now I did like Lynn Shay too. All right, I thought she was good. Now she really sort of loses it at the end. Something happens where she just completely loses it at the end. But yet, she's still talking about how she sees ghostly figures in the woods and they're waving at her. Yeah, yeah. And that was a little creepy. I'll, I'll tell you what's bizarre about this film to me is how, and and again, I don't really, I'm not into this, but like, it is obliquely funny. Like, it, it's, I don't. I would hesitate to call it a horror comedy because yeah. it, it is not a comedy, but there no. are so many moments in it that are humorous, but but it's kind of subtle, and, and I really appreciated that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And you know what? That girl in white becomes much more ominous as the movie carries on and, and really helps promote, like with the horror elements of that character. Oh, yeah. You know, and just what happens to everybody as it goes along and you start realizing what's going to happen. And you're like, it doesn't matter. It didn't matter to me, like I said, that I figured this out because getting there is where the real payoff was for me. Yeah. And and the way that these, I mean, and there are revelations that these characters make that are like, wow, like, holy cow. And there's a creepy car in this movie, which I think yes. is is very cool and it's it's weird. And I'll tell you, Doc, like when this when this film is all said and done, and I was thinking about it because, as you said, it does kind of stay stay with you. Mm-hmm. I thought about it, you know, as I went to sleep that night, and I um, mm-hmm. and it does stay with me for a few days. But my overall impression is, which is really cool. It's like, um, I think what's most unsettling and what's most scary is hey, there could be some shred of truth in this movie, like which is a horror film. It's like there could be some realism to this film. <laughs> when you think of what happens yes. at the end. Right. Yes. I mean, and that – you're right. I mean, that – Wow. And I didn't even approach it from that 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 now I'm gonna be thinking about that point. Yeah, and I didn't and, even think about that. And that's what's had me all freaked out and weirded out. And so um again, listeners, the these aren't spoilers that we're giving. We are dancing around it, of course, yes. but but yes. um yeah, you gotta see this film so you can experience this for yourself. <laughs> Absolutely. And 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 as far as ratings go, this will be the nine for me. This really just affected me to that degree. Um, and again, because the twists themselves aren't really, weren't the only thing about the movie that sold it to me, I think I would watch this one again as well. Hmm. Even knowing where it ultimately goes, I would watch this one again for, for several reasons. The performances for just out, just the, 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 the unsettling feeling it gives you from start to finish. Yeah. You know, stuck in that car and that take place in a car. This movie takes place i mean every now and again they get out right of the car but what would you say 85 maybe 90 percent of the movie is inside this car yeah yeah and that's um impressive that they pull off so much with just that you know yeah that's all there is to it it's really a simple film on some levels but um and one of my favorite things is that this is 
as you said, it's set on Christmas Eve. Yes. Which is cool because, you know, we we always talk about Black Christmas, mm-hmm. you know, it, or um, Silent Night, Deadly Night. But like, you know, I it's, it's good to have a list of uh, Christmas movies. So this Christmas Eve, if you want to watch a horror flick, this is you one to watch. watch. This is one to watch. Dead definitely. end. Streaming on Netflix. Now, Doc, you're going to be really mad. You're probably going to get indignant here. Um, now, for me... I like the movie, and and as you can tell, me talking about it with you, like I, I enjoy it, I respect it, and all mm-hmm. that stuff. But I mean, for me, uh, I I rated a six out of ten, which which is a rental. Mm-hmm. But um, it you know it's it's kind of supernatural, which really isn't my thing. Right. It right. does have comedic elements, which I said are well done, but also kind of take a little bit of the scary it, it edge does off. Have a, it does have a little bit of comedy to it, but I think the comedy is almost... It, it, it's not like you're going to laugh out loud at this movie. No, it's though. subtle. And in fact, the comedy, this is weird to say, but it's true. I think the comedy plays into some of the creepiness, actually. Yes. Which is very bizarre and impressive. So I can't really dock it for comedy, but I'm just trying to say that that's it's not my thing typically. Mm-hmm. And and the fact that it does feel like a Twilight Zone episode. Um, you know, which is cool, but I mean I'm just saying for a full blown horror film, I'm looking for certain things. Mm-hmm. And and all those things, I respect all those things. And so I mean it is a six. It's definitely a rental, but I, I mean I can't come in as high as you do. And I feel I, I do feel conflicted because there's not a whole lot that I I can dock it for or gripe about because understood i'll be honest with you it's it's one of those movies where i didn't know if it was your type of film to begin with oh yeah okay. so i think a six is actually not not too bad okay i thought you were gonna lose it on me because i've no, been singing no. praises with you and i agree with everything you said but mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you're no. a uh, so li- how about this yeah. if you're a super natural horror fan out there you know like like we have listeners to this podcast for example who aren't into like super hardcore stuff like like the loved ones or yes, you know Eden Lake now yes. this would be for those people who want something creepy something nuanced you know yes right that would, this this would be the movie to check out yeah so that's this it. would be the movie to check out and if you re- and for those of you who are interested in checking out some of Ray Wise's work watch this in infestation back to back and then try to get into now I think he's worked with David Lynch if I'm not mistaken Oh, that sounds Has about appeared, right. I think he's appeared in some of David Lynch's works. Yeah. Um, I can't say well, for sure. Twin Peaks. Yeah, that. he's been in Twin Peaks. Okay. Firewalk okay. with me. And was he in Mulholland Drive? Did he have a small part in Mulholland Drive? Let me see. I don't know that from, I don't remember that from the movie. I thought I saw that in his filmography. Okay. Yeah. I don't remember him in that, but let me look here. Let me see. Okay. Maybe, uh, maybe not. Maybe not then. Okay. But uh, Jeepers Creepers 2, Robocop. Oh, that's right. He was, uh, he played the father in Jeepers Creepers 2. Mm -hmm. The one, the one who went after the creature when his son was taken. Yeah. Yeah. And. so sorry, and he's no. also, um, I guess, supposedly in uh, Jurassic City. Oh, I don't know that. I was that, which is coming up, I guess. I thought that was going to be called something different. Maybe this is a a joke or a spoof or something. But no, maybe. Anyways, I'm I'm straight. But, any, but anyway, this this guy, I mean, and the Jeepers Creepers two would be another one to check out. I mean, I, I actually like both of the Jeepers Creepers movies. Oh yeah. Yeah, you know, and I think number two—that's um, another siege movie. Yeah, and the siege narrative with the school bus—I dig it. Yeah, I dig yeah. it. Yeah, 
And, and, and Ray Wise plays a good character in that, you know? So that's another one to check out for him. This guy's a, this guy's a good actor. Yeah. And, that's, and, and I discovered two movies of his, uh, you know, in October. And uh, I do want to see more of them now. Yeah. And um, one other thing on Dead End here, uh, I read in trivia somewhere, maybe it was on Wikipedia, that it, it only had a budget of $900,000 and it made yes. a total of $77 million from DVD in DV, sales. In DVD sales. That's not even theatrical. DVD sales. Yeah. So it made $77 million. That's how this thing was. And you know what? I think it deserved it. You know, so, I think it deserved the recognition that it got, and I think it deserved to make that kind of money. It's definitely one. Now, here, here's the thing: if you're if you're one of these people, you like to get your friends together, watch flicks, and then talk about it. I think this would be a fun one to talk about. Yes. Like maybe go to Denny's afterwards, and you know, right. feel creeped out and talk about. It. But yeah, it's cool. And and hang around for the credits. There's a little stinger at the very end. So right. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah, so that's Dead End from 2003. Again, it is currently streaming on Netflix Watch Instantly. Doc says it's a 9 out of 10. He says, buy it. And I give it a 6 and say, rent it for sure. Stream it. All right, Dr. Shock. Well, you have, you have really done a lot of great work tonight uh, on the oh. Horror Movie Podcast. Thanks Thank for you. bringing it, brother. Oh, yeah, no problem. I, it, it was fun. I, I enjoyed talking about these movies. I had a good time uh, discussing these, and I'm glad you got to check a few of them out, or at least at least you'd seen a few of them. Absolutely, yeah, and I've got now I've got more from my list, and I'm sure the listeners do too, so thanks for your coverage on that. That's Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. If, if anybody checks these out, um, watches them, you know, Leave a comment. Let me know. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, you could say, hey, you're crazy. I don't know what you saw in this. Whatever. I'd just be interested to, to, to hear what, uh, what you thought about it. But for me, these are all movies worth watching. Again, some of them are not perfect, but these are all, you know, I think it's 15 total. Because we discussed, yeah, because I had 14 listed here, but then I had Rogue and Blackwater as one. So I think we talked about 15 total. Yeah. Any of these 15 you happen to watch, um, you know, let, let me know what you think of. Or if you've seen them, let me know what you thought of them. Yeah, and if you want to um, check out Doc's full review, I mean, he wrote up reviews for each of these over at DVDinfatuation.com. Mm-hmm. Definitely visit his site. It is exceptional, and I, I hope that all everybody listening to this podcast has at least visited your site before. I appreciate that. Thank you. As a matter of fact, what I might do is I might add a tag to all of these. I'll call it like um, Halloween 2014. Maybe I could send you that link for just that tag. So yeah. if people want to check out just these reviews, they could do so. So maybe I'll try and do that. Thank you. Yeah, and I'll link it in the show notes for uh, episode 32 here, and then you can just see... All 31 Days of Horror. Yeah, thank you. Because I did watch a few more. My, like the, I hadn't written up any of the Final Destinations. Hmm. Now, on, on That was one of the series I stayed away with. Now I got three of them. I went out and did three of them. And for me, the first three, it's all the same formula. But you know what? It, for me, it's a formula that works. I know some people that are not as big of fans of that type of movie. Um, but for me, the formula works. And uh, I did enjoy the first three in that. Oddly enough, I had gotten into an argument with uh, Jeff Hammer before because I didn't originally care for the second one. Oh, yeah. Um, originally, I didn't like the fact that they brought the, the character back from the first movie. I didn't think that made sense. And I didn't like that none of them knew each other. It didn't make sense that all these people would hang around with each other and, and be complete strangers from like the day before they didn't even know each other. Yes, they sort of had this common bond keeping them together. 
but it just seems a little more far-fetched that all these strangers would just voluntarily hang around together. But after watching it again, I'm like, hey, you know what? It does work. <laughs> I actually did enjoy this this one uh, this time around. So yeah, the first three of them, for me, I, I, I liked them. And I saw Zombieland and The Mist. I did watch that one again. I know we had just done that, mm-hmm. but I liked that movie so much I ended up watching it again. Yeah. Have you watched the black um, and white version see, yet? I didn't. And you know what? After I watched it, I kicked myself. I was like, damn it, I should have watched it in black and white because I wanted to see it in black and white. You got to. Yeah, it's actually better in black and white. Is it really? Yes, it wow. is. Yes, it is. So listeners wow. out there, if you revisit The Mist or it's your first time watching The Mist, I'm not usually a guy who would prefer black and white over color, but that movie actually works better in black and white. Nice. Yes. All right. Well, Dr. Shock, thanks. Do uh, you got any other plugs? Where can they follow you on Twitter and stuff? Make sure the oh, listeners yeah. know. Uh, come out uh, at DVD Infatuation, all one word. I send out trivia tweets uh, several every hour. Yes. Awesome um, ones. And I have them scheduled them so that they go 24 hours. So even if you're in Australia, wherever you are, there'll be something new posting every few, every five, every 10 minutes, I think it is. I know. Like I suck at Twitter, but every once in a while, it's weird. I'll be on Twitter at like three o'clock in the morning and I'll see tweets from Dr. Shock and it's yeah. just so awesome. It's, I'm asleep. <laughs> but I have them scheduled out and I do it every day. And what it is, is I just have a sort of a system put together so I'm not repeating them too often. <laughs> um, and now that I'm up to over 1,540 movies for trivia, it gets to the point that I can go months without repeating. Uh, sometimes I can go as much as four months without repeating tweets. That's awesome. Um, and just and I'm always adding new ones when I put new movies in and so forth. So, yeah, definitely check me out there. As a matter of fact, I just got a tweet tonight from Olivia Hussey. Oh, really? Um, from a movie that she was in. She was in a movie in 1980 that I saw on cable when I was a kid that I loved called The Man with Bogart's Face. Uh, it's sort of a comedy thriller. Uh, this guy, uh, uh, is it Richard Sackey? I can't remember his full name, but he looks and talks just like Humphrey Bogart. That was his act. That he looks and, and acts exactly like Humphrey Bogart. And this movie is set up almost like a Maltese Falcon type of detective movie. She was in that. But of course, uh, for horror fans, Olivia yeah. Hussey is Black Christmas. Black Christmas and It. She's in It as well. Yep. Well, she came out to the man with Bogart's face. She just made a comment that it was a fun movie to make because they actually shot it right around the corner from where she lived. So she could just walk the work. She was also in Psycho 4, The Beginning, the TV That's right. Movie. She played she played the mother, right? Yeah, as Norma Bates. That's right. She played the mother. <laughs> That's right. I had forgotten about that. But uh, she's a good – and she's a good actress and she's been around for a while. Mm-hmm. She played um, Mary in Jesus of Nazareth. And, That's uh, she's, right. She's just a gorgeous, gorgeous woman. She is. She is. But for me, like I said, it's always going to be Black Christmas. When I hear Olivia Hussey, that's the first movie I always default to. Oh, yes. But she has been in a lot of different things. And you're right. I forgot about Jesus of Nazareth. All right. Well, Dr. Shock, you've been very generous with your time. And thanks for being a part of this tonight. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. And uh, I look forward to listening to the rest of the show to hear what you guys have to say about these other films, especially Exists. All right, buddy. That sounds good. And you have a good night. You too. Take care. All right, it's Jay of the Dead here with you once again, solo casting, and I have one of those dirty jobs to do right here. And I'll just start off by saying that we film critics are not important or relevant, and I know this, I accept this, but there is one way that film critics contribute to society. They watch movies like Jan Gal, and we warn you away from the trap of watching them, because sometimes films are tempting. 
Well, I get this screener, this opportunity to review a new 2014 film called Mutantis. Yes, Mutantis. It's like mutant hiss. <laughs> Pronounced Mutantis. And so I will do my duty and give you an idea of exactly what you're in for if you watch Mutantis. And we'll start off with an audio clip. So are you finally ready to tell us what this is about? I guess I could tell you. In fact, you can help me with the capture. The capture of what? The capture of Mutantis. Of what? Mutantis. Mutantis, you see, in 1954 when Theodore Roosevelt had the atomic power plant built in the valley, a legend soon arose. The legend tells of a mutant beast that terrorized the valley and consumed all that came near. Okay, now as you could tell, this is a comedy, first and foremost, and it's also a monster movie, supposedly. I mean, Mutantis is a monster, which I'll talk about here. Now, our buddy TJ in Finland, for example, he's going to be ticked off about this because... <laughs> now, this is something that I would not classify as a horror film, so why are we talking about it on here, especially if we didn't talk about horns earlier? Well... It's being billed and promoted as a horror film, and when you look at the cover, which you'll see in the artwork for the show notes, you might be tempted to watch it as a dumb, like, B-movie, or maybe Z-movie, for, you know, kind of like the same thing we did with Jan Gell. But Mutantis is a comedy first, and it's a cheesy monster movie, and when I say cheesy, oh my goodness... <laughs> so, this film is a 2014 movie, as I said, and it is directed by Kelly Fitzgerald. And the writer is Mark Leake, who's the person who contacted me about checking it out. And the premise, written by Mark Leake, is, When an unscrupulous scientist drags his stepchildren out into the forest to use them as bait in the hopes of luring out a Bigfoot... Not even the team of hillbillies he hired can contain the horror they find, the horror of Mutantis. Okay, and I'll just I'll just stop right there with the premise. There's more to it, but um honestly, it is kind of hard to glean that that's what the movie is about when you're watching it. It actually looks like a live action version of an Adult Swim cartoon, one of those animated. I mean, it's not Eon Flux, of course, but it's one of those things that you'd watch late at night in the middle of the night on, you know, MTV or something. That's just kind of what it reminded me of. And what's weird is as off-putting and as offensive, and I don't mean like morally offensive, I mean just typical general rules of cinema, rules of entertainment, rules of <laughs> taking your audience's time and attention. I mean, by those standards, there are so many things about it that are offensive. And like the two things for me that are unforgivable, and this is done intentionally for comedic effect. They have terrible costumes that are just the worst possible costumes. I mean, you could go right now in your mom's closet or whatever and find really silly things to put on and it would look better than the costumes in this because they're going for really far out. They're going for crazy and wacky. But it's just, it's kind of stupid because they look so bad. I mean, if you want to do crazy costumes, that's fine. But, you know, put some effort into it. And I get it. I mean, their defense in this film, if anybody who made this film or worked on this film heard my review, it's like, 
it's supposed to be like that, man. It's a joke. You don't get the joke. It's like, yeah, I, I get the joke. It's just not funny. And moreover, the other thing they do is the dialogue, like the ADR work or whatever, it does not match up with their mouths. And it's it's grossly off intentionally. Okay, this is totally like they'll even say different phrases with their mouth than what you're hearing in the script. So they look terrible and their dialogue is off with their mouth. And so those two things are unforgivable. Otherwise, this movie is weird enough and bizarre enough and random enough and (laughs) insane enough that it could be some kind of a freak guilty pleasure thing that you watch in the middle of the night. I mean, this is definitely a 2 a.m. bag of Doritos, Mountain Dew, or, you know, for those of you who get intoxicated, (laughs) this is so, or or some other kind of, you know, chemically inspired state, you know, this might be something entertaining to people. I mean, it does have its charms, which is so weird to say, because as off-putting as it is, in some ways, in other ways, it's like they, (laughs) it's so bizarre that it's just like you can't look away. And let me just give you an example here. I've pulled another clip here, and this is not um, a politically correct clip, just so you know, but this comes from the film Mutantis. Starshine is far out, but his pal is totally establishment. He's almost retarded. And you can't be groovy if you're retarded. Right on. Okay, so you can't be groovy if you're retarded. Well, this movie is um, not groovy, and I think you know what I mean there. So let me give you a couple other things here. It is not yet rated, but this would be like an R-rated film. It's only 73 minutes long. They open with this warning about how it's like a dirty movie or whatever, and, you know, there's some of that. It's definitely like a sleazy 70s throwback exploitation, but again... It's too silly for anything. Now, as far as the beast itself, Mutantis, which is our title character, this creature is paper mache, but like really bad, like fourth grader paper mache is what it looks like. I mean, it it looks like somebody took paper and painted it and then stuffed the inside of the paper with other paper, you know, It's just, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's kind of um, unforgivable, but but I mean, these people are, and, and the whole time they're talking about the establishment and there's all this, like in some ways, sometimes the dialogue is actually kind of funny and it's this weird thing where they always cut to this narrator who's this bizarre guy and he'll say some kind of unusual thing like this for example let me give you one last clip from mutantis this is the random scene where it cuts to a narrator and this is just one example of something he says young ladies beware these days girls are being told that they should stand up for their so-called rights because squares can't make the scene But what they don't know is that these ideas come from frigid lesbian sorcerers who are out to destroy America. Okay, so I guess maybe you could watch this movie if you wanted to find some bizarre band name. You know, if you want to name your band, maybe, you know, frigid lesbian sorcerers would be a good band name. I I don't know. I mean, that's how 
Toad the Wet Sprocket got their band name from <laughs> a Monty Python skit. So maybe that's a reason to watch this movie because it is just so random. Another thing that they do, and I'm, I'm wrapping this up, I promise, but I just got to tell you some of this. Like They'll have a character that you've seen a lot. So you're familiar with the actor. You recognize him. And then in the middle of the movie, for no apparent reason other than to be funny, I'm sure, they switch out actors with someone who looks completely different, (laughs) a la Jan Gell 2, somebody who looks completely different, who's kind of wearing the same costume, and, and you know it's supposed to be that character. You know, this different guy is much thinner than the previous guy in the same role. So this is insane and not a horror movie. I feel like I lost brain cells watching this, and at the same time, I kind of had a good time sitting and just with a smirk on my face and giggling. But with the dialogue out of sync and the awful costumes, which is all intentional, this is a 1 out of 10. And this isn't a void for me. But there are people out there who like really bizarre stuff. And just from those clips you've heard there, you know, I'm sure that you're going to try it out. But hey, I'm telling you right now, I've done my duty and you've been warned. Hi, this is Jay of the Dead podcasting at 3.30 a.m. from Salt Lake City. For this episode's Intermission of the Dead, I want to tell you about a little gem I found called Zombie Town. It was written and directed by Damon LeMay, who has been on the film crew for a few bigger movies, but Zombie Town is his straight-to-video directorial debut, and it's actually a pretty strong entry for a first-timer's low-budget zombie flick. Zombie Town is set in and filmed on location in Vermont, which I thought was a little refreshing change of scenery there. And as this movie opens, you're not sure really how you're going to feel about it because the very first zombie attack happens off screen. And that's weak, right? But don't worry, it gets better. You've got these hunters in this cabin in the woods, and this is where the outbreak really gets rolling. So right from the opening sequence, you get to see some gore scenes with a pretty good ear rip. And then there's a garden rake slash across the face. And the gashes that it leaves in the cheek look real. So I've got to commend LeMay for the special effects. They use mostly practical effects in this movie and they're done really well. And there's one pretty bad green screen explosion. But the gore is practical and it looks good. So I give them a pass on that. And even though this movie is called Zombie Town, it might have been called Zombie Slugs because... These zombies are created by having this parasite that gets inside the body. And after a little time, these freaky little creatures make awful noise. They make this terrible noise. They burst out of the victim's skin and they look like newborn baby bats or mice or some other kind of leech-like toothy creature. The characters end up calling them slugs, which works because salt burns them and eats them alive, just like a real slug. But because these zombies are filled with these growing internal slugs, you can actually kill the zombies with salt in this movie by either force-feeding it to them or shooting it into their bodies. So that's awesome. And since these slugs erupt out of the zombies and kill the host, I guess they're a little bit like alien. So yeah, you can see some alien influence there. But they reminded me even more of that little armpit creature in Cronenberg's Rabid from 1977. The zombies are average looking, but the slugs make up for it. As far as my complaints though, um, the performances aren't very good, the acting gets worse, the more upset the characters get, and the cast just doesn't have the chops to pull off emotional intensity. And the movie is mostly horror, 
But like many zombie movies, some comedy is blended in and it's even a little bit funny sometimes, but it slides too much into the comedy side as the movie progresses. So they get a little carried away with it. And the main protagonist guy, he's the focus for most of the movie and you think he's going to be the hero. He ends up kind of taking a back seat and this jerky guy steps up and assumes the heroic role, kind of like we saw in Zombie Death House. So that was weird. But my biggest gripe is that I love realism in my horror movies, and in Zombie Town, the characters are a little too casual for what's going on around them. And again, that's a performance issue. They're just not urgent enough. And plus, you got these three main characters who take it upon themselves to try to solve and cure and battle all these zombies and save their town alone. So that's pretty unrealistic too. But despite my complaints, I'd still call Zombie Town a worthy, gory, low-budget zombie flick with toothy zombie slugs and some decent practical effects. So I'm rating it a 6 out of 10, and I'd recommend renting it. That's it for this episode's Intermission of the Dead. So on behalf of the Zombie Reckoning Podcast, this is Jay of the Dead, signing off. Okay, and at this point in episode 32 of uh, Horror Movie Podcast, we're going to go into some listener voicemails, which we absolutely love to get listener voicemails. It's way more fun to hear you guys than to just hear us drone on constantly, especially when I have to do some solo casting along the way. And so we got a lot of these, actually. And so even though I typically love to respond to voicemails and listener feedback with my other hosts on there, and I know that you prefer that as well, I had to get these in here because they're cool. A lot of them pertain to the Halloween episodes. And I just want to show our appreciation that you actually called in. I mean, that is just awesome when you do that. It's neat to hear each other. So hopefully the community here When you hear these voicemails, you guys will respond, you know, to each other in the comments or call and leave your own voicemails and respond. I mean, that would be just even better. So I'm going to play these voicemails for you. And I just want to thank everybody once again. So this first one comes from Dave Jones. Hey, guys, this is Dave Jones. I recently uh, picked up listening to you guys around Halloween. I loved all your coverage on the uh, Halloween uh, series. Love hearing about Michael Myers, obviously Halloween, 1978. One of my top two or three movies of all time, seriously. I am a big horror fan. I actually listened to you guys uh, talk about the town, the dreaded sundown. Watched it. I think I uh, actually tweeted to the uh, Horror Movie Podcast uh, Twitter page there, telling you guys thanks for a recommendation and uh, watched it and enjoyed it. Just wanted to say I'm enjoying your podcast. I enjoy all the hard work you guys do. Going back and listening to some of the older stuff, listening to the Feral Vampires episode, thought it was tremendous. And uh, just keep up the great work and know that you guys got another listener out there. Thanks a lot. Y'all have a great day. Dave, thanks for calling in. It's nice of you to let us know that you dig the show. And by the way, we had planned to review the remake, you know, the new The Town That Dreaded Sundown. But I'll just tell you right now, just a little sneak peek, you have got to see this. Definitely check out the remake. Get your hands on it as soon as possible. I freaking love that movie, and um, I'm excited about that. If you're a slasher fan, you're going to dig it. So thanks again for calling in. And P.S. I suck at Twitter, you guys. You probably have recognized that already in me. I'm terrible. I'll try to do better. I'm continually trying to get better at Twitter. So thanks for your patience there. This next voicemail, the listener is from Chicago, Illinois, and I got that 
I had such a hard time. I've listened to him say his name probably 30 times and I still didn't get it. So I'm sorry to this listener. It sounds like, I'm sure he's not saying this, but this would be a creepy horror name. So honestly, I would go with this and maybe I'll steal this in some capacity someday. But it sounds like he's saying toys in the well. And if you think about that for a minute, that's very creepy, right? So... I'm just going to say this voicemail comes from Toys in the Well from Chicago, Illinois. Hey, guys. This is Toys in the Well coming to you from Chicago, Illinois. First off, just want to say thank you. You guys do a fantastic job with the podcast. As an audience member, you know, we can tell that you guys really love what you do, and we really appreciate that. To start things off, I'll, I'll try and keep this as short as possible. I know you have probably have many emails and voicemails to go through. Quick trivia. There's a famous comedian in Halloween 2. You probably see the back quarter panel of his head. I'm sure the big Halloween heads may know this one. Let's see if you can spot who that is. And that is the original Halloween 2. Also, check out the car that Janet Lee is driving in Halloween H2O. And for you Tarantino fans, as you may know or may not know, Tarantino films are all intertwined. Just a couple small examples. Donnie the Bear Jew Donowitz is actually the father of Lee Donowitz, played by Saul Rubinek in uh, True Romance, as well as the diner scene in Pulp Fiction when Uma Thurman is mentioning Fox Force 5. She's actually talking about the cast of Kill Bill. Moving on, a couple of recommendations that I, uh, movies I think are criminally underrated is uh, Campfire Tales from 1997. Very, 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 very fun movie, as well as The Hills Run Red. I know you guys had spoken about uh, Willow Creek in the past. Exists is another Bigfoot movie, and it's also done by the guy who did Blair Witch Project. I also wanted to see if you guys could possibly do a review in the future of Pyramid, which is Alexandre Aha's new film, who I'm a huge fan of, as well as 31. 31 is the new movie by Rob Zombie um, that's fan-funded and, of course, involving clowns. The last and final big thing I wanted to touch up on, I am a huge, huge Eli Roth fan. I know Green Inferno has been put on hold indefinitely. However, I had just seen a trailer sent to me by a buddy called Clown, and it's supposed to be pretty brutal. The poster has already been banned in Italy, just the poster. And Eli Roth is also going to be releasing another film next year called Knock Knock with Keanu Reeves, and the synopsis sounds pretty fun there as well. And last but not least... Thanksgiving apparently is going to be made. He has got a couple scripts, or rough copies, I should say, of, of scripts that he's he's willing to go forward with. So I think all of us who have been praying and waiting for Thanksgiving to get made may get our wish soon. Thanks again, guys. Hope you'll work. Okay, thanks again. Toys in the well, and I'm sorry I don't have your name right, but I seriously think that's a cool name. <laughs> I nicknamed Jarrett the Chief from Jaws, and I think he kind of liked that. I hope so. But anyways, very cool trivia. I do not know the comedian in Halloween 2, but I bet if Josh were here or Dr. Shock, they would probably know. They're way more knowledgeable than I am. And um, yeah, I liked all your trivia, actually. And by the way, Campfire Tales from 1997, one time on Horror Palace, which is the big horror network we used to be a part of, we did this incredible episode that I just loved called um, The Best Horror Movies of the 80s and 90s. And in fact... I think you can actually find that in case people want to hear that, which is a must listen. Seriously, go to Bill Shetty's site, which is 
horrorontheGo.com. Okay, so you go to Horror on the Go, and at the top there, you look at his um, catalog of audio shows, right? And then if you look down in his previous podcasts, you can see that under the Horror Palace specials, it's episode six, the best horror movies of the 80s and 90s. You can download that. I actually host that particular show. I put it together. I'm very proud of it. It's one of my favorite things I've ever done in horror podcasting. Anyway, we've assembled a great group there, and um, we give you just tons of great recommendations. Anyway, Campfire Tales from 1997, that was Bill Shetty's pick for the best horror film of the 1990s. So, uh, yes, I have actually been wanting to get to that. I haven't seen that, so I need to get to that one. And The Hills Run Red is on the list to review soon. I've actually been trying to work that in. And Exists, we were supposed to review it on this episode, but it's definitely going to be next episode. And yes, we will review Pyramid, because I love Alexandra Aja, and 31, of course. I'm excited about Clown. And I am so stoked that Thanksgiving is going to be made. So thanks again for calling in from Chicago, Illinois. Great to hear from you. All right, so this next voicemail is very amusing and entertaining. This is from HP Love Sauce. Happy, happy Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. Happy, happy Halloween, Silver Shamrock. Actually, I'm calling not on Halloween, but on El Dia de los Muertos, this is HP Love Sauce. Wanted to let you know I'm a fan of the podcast and I love the Halloween 123 podcast you did. You guys were fair to Halloween 3. I've got a soft spot for it. It is uh, a brilliant movie wrapped inside of a crappy movie. It's an odd duck. I wanted to let you guys know that Nigel Neal, probably one of the most influential uh, figures in British television as far as science fiction programming is concerned was the guy who first wrote the screenplay treatment for it, or not the treatment, but the screenplay, and then wanted his name taken off because apparently the producers wanted more gore added. Without Nigel Neal writing from the 70s, or sorry, from the 50s, with uh, Professor Bernard Quatermass as his scientist hero, uh, a lot of people feel that there never would have been a Doctor Who. So, shout out to Nigel Neal, the guy who, at least in part, engendered the uh, strange, flawed gem that is Halloween 3. Love you guys. Take care. <laughs> Thanks, HP Love Sauce, for your voicemail. And first of all, we love you too, brother. And their singing was very creepy at the beginning. I love that as well. My favorite thing you said, and it is quotable, this is a quotable quote, is when you said that Halloween 3 was, quote, a brilliant movie wrapped inside of a crappy movie. <laughs> and I, I love that. I think that's hilarious. Yeah, Halloween 3 has so much potential to be great, and I just don't think it's a very good horror film. And I'm so sorry. I know a lot of you out there love it and appreciate it. It is lost on me, apparently, but that's excellent Nigel Neal trivia. I did not know that, so that's super cool. Thanks for calling in, and you are welcome to call in anytime, anytime at all. Okay, well, this next voicemail comes from TJ, who's calling in from Finland. 
Hey, Jay, this is uh, TJ from Finland once again. I wanted to call in and leave a little feedback on some of your uh, Halloween podcasts here. Uh, the first thing I want to say, I do agree, Halloween 3, uh, when you take a look at it from uh, the perspective of a it doesn't have Michael Myers. Just take that out of it. I do agree. It's one of the stronger movies in the franchise. I really like it a lot. Good job on uh, giving a good critique of that movie. But uh, really what I wanted to call about and discuss the most, and I'll try to keep it brief, you're talking about uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween, the remake, reboot, uh, whatever the definition you want to use there. And one of uh, your other commentators on the podcast mentioned that he didn't see the evil in the young Michael Myers that we get to hear about from Dr. Loomis in the original John Carpenter. And I, I somewhat agree with that, but I, I wanted to bring this up and see what the, your other podcasters uh, thought about this point. I feel uh, there was a scene in, in Rob Zombie's uh, Halloween where uh, Danny Trejo is talking to uh, the Michael Myers character in his little cell there in the psychiatric ward, and he tells he tells him while he's a child, he said, "Hey, you can't let these walls get you down. You gotta, you know, you know they can't contain your mind. You gotta look outside your mind. Your your mind can set you free. You don't let the walls kind of constrain you." And uh, the little boy Michael Myers kind of nods his head and agrees. And while I do think the evil could have been conveyed better in the child in the movie, do you think that maybe he took that advice and totally withdrew within himself and there was something that that unlocked that would have been representative of the evil that we know about Michael Myers? Like I said, I think it could have been conveyed better. But I think if you notice after Trejo gives him that advice, that's when he really withdraws from everything. He, he becomes what he is. So I just wanted to bring that up. I don't know if this is in time for your podcast or not, but anyway, I hope you're doing well. Keep up the good work, and I look forward to the next podcast. Thanks. All right, TJ, thanks for calling in. And uh, as I recall, it seemed like TJ was the guy who didn't think we should cover films like Godzilla on horror movie podcasts. And I respect that. I understand that. If I recall correctly, I think he's the guy. So I'm sorry about Mutantis. So hopefully you're still listening after that Mutantis review because (laughs) we played your voicemail here. Now, I love your theory of the evil of Michael Myers here. Now, this is the... This is precisely the kind of reading of horror films that I just love. I mean, that's the way I like to watch horror movies. That's what it's about to me. So I salute TJ there. That is excellent work. And in fact, it reminds me, we got um, a great email from a brand new listener. His name's Tim. He wrote this email about Halloween 3 and Halloween 6. And he has kind of a way to tie them together a little bit, which just kind of blew my mind. I'm teasing about that because I want to read it to you. I'm going to save it for the next episode because I want Josh and Doc to hear that awesome email. But anyway, uh, that is great work. You guys had a lot of good insights about these Halloween movies that I never even thought of. So that's tremendous. And um, I appreciate your call once again, TJ. Thank you. And next we got a voicemail from one of our greatest voicemail commentators here. This comes from Levi, the unknown murderer, and uh, he has a lot of good stuff to say. It is always a pleasure when he calls. So thank you for calling in, Levi, and um, play his voicemail right now. Hi, everybody. This is Levi Olson, a.k.a. the unknown murderer. I am calling about your Halloween episodes uh, to let you know how greatly appreciated these are. I find myself actually needing to go back and revisit all of the uh, installments of the series that I don't like. And for very good reasons, when you guys can give me reasons as to why these films, the majority of them, even though they have their failings, don't suck. Even though parts of them suck, (laughs) you can tell me why they're good on some level. 
I have to rethink things, and I really do, really do love listening to the show. It's I am not overstating things. I think it's the best horror podcast I've listened to so far, and I have enjoyed, absolutely enjoyed every episode for last year, which it blows my mind that it's been a year already. But anyway, I wish I could talk to Josh for hours about horror and Doc and Jay. And even Doctor Walking Dead, if he could, if he could make it. But I appreciate the, the insight and the really digging in and trying to figure this stuff out. And honestly, it all does matter because we love these things. And I, I truly appreciate it that you guys can have civil conversations and disagree without being insane. I tried listening to a podcast one time where the host and his friends just started screaming at each other, and it was from a reputable website. And I was blown away that they were so strangely unprofessional and angry. But you guys are amazing. This is just my kind of thing. Anyways, this will probably be a multi-segment phone call. I hope that's okay. The symbolism of Michael's face in the first Halloween uh, being blank, you know, as like in my article on the website, I, I think this time it, it hit me harder because when you guys were talking about what does the mask mean, what does it stand for, uh, this girl meets her ultimate boogeyman, and this man who wants to penetrate her, and he's got this blank face. For her, that's what's coming. You know, this was fate that she was fated to die. Everyone's fated to die. And look at her friends. Look at the way they behave. They're on a different level than her. I don't know. This guy sneaking around with a blank slate of a face just, uh, you know, he represents death after sex from his killing his sister in the beginning of the film. And, you know, for Lori, her friends keep trying to encourage her towards those relationships, and she doesn't want to go. Well, what is she afraid of? She didn't want to date Ben Tramer, who ironically was wearing a Michael mask in the second film and died. It's almost like they're saying, let's wipe them out. We're just going to do something different here. But I think that symbolism is there. She doesn't know who it is who is going to take her innocence as she gets older. And here's this blank face, and this man's got this long thing, something in his hand he wants to penetrate her with. Not to be dirty, that's just what the fear is about for her. The reason I bring it up and repeat that stuff is not to say, hey, look at what I think of this, but to ask a question of you guys, because as the, the movies wear on, series wears on, I think that that original dynamic's missing from the original film, and that's fine. You know, John changed things. I like Halloween 2 a lot for what it is, you know, and even the sister storyline works pretty well, but I guess where I'm headed towards is the end of the series after the reboot. Jay, you had mentioned the, the masks inside of the asylum in the room where Michael was saying where he made all these awesome masks. I mean, they look fantastic. I agree with you guys on that. This looked really rad. And, you know, the bobblehead Michael, when he was little and he put that thing on and he killed his sister and the boy, and what is the meaning of that other than having lifted it from the original film, which is fine. You know, it's Rob Zombie's version. He doesn't have to use the same symbolism or anything like that. I don't believe that has to be the case. But the mask being blank like that doesn't mean the same thing it did in the original. And I think that's also fine, but he looks silly, which leads me to my question. I, I'm looking at the first and second Rob Zombie films. I need to watch them again. I've watched them both once, and I didn't like the first one the first time I watched it. And, Greg, I love you. <laughs> I really do. I love listening to you talk about this stuff. Sometimes you point some things out that hit me over the head. But the mask, the bobblehead thing, the way he looked, it was kind of funny. It didn't have the same meaning. All those uh, masks are in his room, and what does that really represent? You know, it's kind of a feeling where zombies using the symbolism with the white horse, and it's almost like he doesn't know how to use symbolism. Like, he's, you know, he had to explain it, but I heard that's the Weinstein's fault. And here's where I'm going. I wish for life when you guys had reviewed the unrated versions of these films, because I hear those are the director's cuts. And for Rob Zombie to get a fair shake, I need to go back and take a look at those, because I suspect there might be something up with Part 2. Halloween 2 has uh, maybe something going on that I didn't see before, but I might get back to you on that if you're interested. Anyway... 
love this show. Thank you so much for what you guys have done. I've been having a really difficult time in life recently, and this has been like uh, a tonic for me. Uh, I'll talk to you later. Bye. All right. Well, we appreciate the voicemail from Levi, the unknown murderer. And I just want people to know something right up front about the unknown murderer here. We actually really tried to get him on our show as a guest for the Halloween reviews for the first Halloween, actually, John Carpenter's 1978. But um, I have a terrible schedule. Wolfman Josh has a terrible schedule. And Dr. Shock, that guy doesn't sleep at all. And so we are very rigid in our scheduling and the times when we try to record. And as you've seen in this episode, we couldn't even get Josh on the show. So we have made it very difficult for awesome guests like Levi to get on the show. And I I still feel terrible about that. I would have loved to have heard his opinion. But in case you have not read it, Levi actually wrote a great blog post about John Carpenter's Halloween. Uh, It's called Between the Sheets, and it's on our site at horrormoviepodcast.com. I will link it in the show notes. It's very cool, and you can see like where Levi's coming from. He has a great analytical mind, and I'm always impressed with his insights. So definitely check that out. And uh, thanks for your compliments, Levi. It's really humbling. I can't believe it's been a year either. (laughs) Seriously. And leave voicemails anytime you want. Now, regarding the bobblehead mask, I I know what you're talking about there. That's a funny way to describe that. Yeah, you brought it to my attention and I was thinking about it because of your voicemail. And one thing, you know, with the head being too large, it reminds me of like, you know, how in all animals, all species that I can think of, the infants, like the babies, are weirdly proportioned where the head is always like gigantically big compared to the body. And a lot of people believe that's why baby creatures or baby versions of things are cute. But in this case, if for some reason, and I don't know if we do this on some kind of subconscious level, Levi, but maybe when you see that ridiculous bobblehead look to that kid having that big mask on, maybe that triggers something within us where we recognize that whole baby element, and yet that is juxtaposed in our brains with this awful conflict that this is a killer we're looking at. Maybe it's actually off-putting to you for that reason. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, maybe we have this association because when you see something with a big head like that, maybe that's what you think. That's just my theory. I mean, Perhaps that's why I find it off-putting as well. But what do the masks symbolize? I have a really straightforward read on that. And I think that his propensity toward making masks is just that maybe he sees himself as a hundred different nightmares. Because all of those masks are kind of scary, right? And I've wondered before about what Michael Myers thinks about his victim's perception of him. And so I wondered if, you know, maybe he fantasizes about the way people receive him as a killer, as their um, grim reaper, so to speak. And so maybe these masks are various interpretations of these victims that he fantasizes about. And maybe he wants to wear a different reaper face in each of those fantasies. I mean, I know this is, I'm really stretching it here. This is very speculative and I'm going way out on a limb, but it's just a read. It's a take. I would have loved to have seen him wear some of those masks. And Greg Amortis was exactly right. In order to have a Halloween movie, you have to don the white mask. And that is absolutely necessary. But I would have liked to have seen more of those freaky masks in the Rob Zombie Halloween. 
lastly, Levi, I just want to say, yes, we'd love to hear your take on the unrated cuts. I think that'd be awesome. So yeah, go ahead and check those out and let us know. You could do a blog post if you want. You know, I'd be interested in reading that or you can call in, you know, whatever you want. But I just want you to know that hang in there. I mean, I think we all, I know we all go through tough times, Levi. So I just want you to know, brother, we're in your corner here at Horror Movie Podcast. And I I would even venture to say that the rest of the horror community is as well. So you hang in there, buddy. And remember, I watch, the reason I like to watch horror movies is because it makes me feel better about my own life. (laughs) So we got a couple of really hardcore recommendations in this, like with Eden Lake, the Dr. Chuck was talking about, and the loved ones. So, you know, you watch something like that, you probably feel better about what's going on in your life. Anyways, thanks again, Levi. This next voicemail comes from the host of the Retro Relapse Podcast. Let's give it a listen. Hello, Horror Movie Podcast. I've been uh, wanting to call you for a while. I just haven't done it. But I've recently listened to your episode of old school 80s movies, which is exactly what I've been hoping you guys have sometimes. None of them I've really seen, but I did hear of Rawhead Rex. So I knew about that one, but I've never seen it. Anyways, I've been listening to your show for, I believe, about a year now. I really, really like your show, even though a lot of movies that you guys watch I haven't seen, so it's always new, something new for me to hear about or check out. There are all sorts of movies I'd like to hear you guys talk about, too. Maybe, like, some sci-fi horror stuff to do a discussion with. Something like that, maybe. I had some episodes on my podcast I did for a while of some horror stuff. Uh, We discussed Cujo on my show and some movies. The show that I was doing a podcast of was called Retro Relapse Podcast. We mainly discussed retro movies, music, and video games. But anyways, I just wanted to call and just say I really like your show, and I would like to get it on sometime because I always think in depth about different movies as well, and I agree with a lot of your points of views with different movies when it's actually one I have seen. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I didn't catch his name, so um, maybe I missed it, but I'll just call you Retro Relapse if you don't mind. And uh, this is a compliment. Retro Relapse, I think I would like to hear you do a podcast episode with Willis Wheeler. You both have, you have a distinctive voice yourself, and I think that would be very cool to hear you two do a podcast together because our buddy Willis over on Terror Troop has a really cool voice as well. Just wanted to say that. Also, we try to put up the movies that we're going to be reviewing in the sidebar at horrormoviepodcast.com. So if you look over on the right-hand sidebar, now in this case, in this episode, we um, shamefully did not get to any of those movies that we were promoting, but (laughs) the ones that are up there now will definitely have coverage in the next episode, which is two weeks from today. I think that's November 21st. And so if you can get those watched in time, then because it sounds like maybe you would like to be familiar with the films that we're reviewing, and we've had other listeners ask that as well. So maybe that's one way. And if you have requests, I am a big time mood watcher, like where I have to be in a certain mood for a certain kind of movie. And even within a genre, like if I, you know, I'll be in a horror movie mood, but I'll want like a Beastly Freaks film or something else. You know, it's got to be, I'm just very moody that way. I'm just an artist, I guess. No, I'm just kidding. But 
But in all seriousness, so I've actually done a terrible job at fulfilling the requests and things. But I love to get the requests. I'm really trying to get to them. I went through recently a previous episode of this podcast, and there were lots of things that I told people, just lied blatantly, not on purpose, but now I realize I was just lying because I still haven't gotten to those, and I'm terribly sorry. I'm really going to try to do better and get that fixed up. But anyway, send us your requests. We'd love to hear it. I know Josh and Doc are good at following up on that, and I'll try to get better myself. So thanks again, Retro Relapse, for your voicemail, and it was good to hear from you. And next, we'll move to our final voicemail of the evening, and this comes from our buddy Eric from Long Island. Hey, Horror Movie Podcast. It's Eric from Long Island, and I had some news for Jay. I wasn't sure if he was aware of the upcoming Alice Sweet Alice remake. And while I cringed when I first heard about that, because it is one of my favorites too, when I saw who was behind it, I got excited. It's uh, supposedly going to be made by Dante Tomaselli. And I'm sure you're familiar with his work if you're a horror fan. If not, definitely check it out. And apparently he has some kind of relationship to the original filmmaker. Uh, he's his nephew or cousin or something. I found a couple of different sites that said different things. So now I'm excited about it. If anyone's going to do it and maybe be able to reach the aesthetic of the original, it's going to be Dante Tomaselli. And uh, just wondering if you're excited about that or if you're a little nervous, because uh, I'm a little both. All right, guys, keep up the good work. Love the show. All right, Eric, thanks for that awesome voicemail. Uh, the first thing I want to tell you before I forget, Eric, is um, speaking of cool voices, you have an awesome voice as well. And I'd love to have a clip of you saying, this is Eric from Long Island, and you're listening to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. <laughs> Brother, if you call in and say that, I will play it. I would love that. So um, seriously, you have a very cool radio voice. You should be on the radio. I'm just saying. Anyways. Alice Sweet Alice Remake. I am pumped about this. I actually had not heard about this until I got your voicemail, and I am super excited. Yes, I love the original, but I'm not one of these people who gets, as Josh says, too precious about the <laughs> the original version of the films. I mean, I'm a hopeful guy. I'm always hopeful that I'll love a movie. Every time I see a movie, even when I watch something like Mutantis, I have high hopes that it's going to turn out, you know? I'm pretty optimistic that way. So especially when it's a movie I love, like my all-time favorite horror film, of course, is The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 1974. And, you know, when the remake came out with Jessica Biel, that new one from 2003, I believe it was, I was very hopeful, and I actually do kind of like that movie. I'm not offended at all. And when Rob Zombie made a new Halloween, you know, it's like, oh, it's going to be tough. But, you know, I like it when they do it. So I am very hopeful. Now, for those who aren't familiar with Dante Tomaselli, I think that's very encouraging. I mean, he's the director of things like Desecration, a film called Horror, which has a tremendous cover art. I actually really love that cover art. A movie called Satan's Playground and Torture Chamber. So I'm I'm sure that everybody listening to this podcast is familiar. And so, I mean, we're looking at some competent filmmaking here. And Alice Sweet Alice is a creepy movie. I mean, the original is. And I have a feeling that this new one will be as well. And I love to see that we're getting some slashers again. I mean, we got The Town That Dreaded Sundown. 
it's a slasher and Alice Sweet Alice is a slasher. So thank goodness we're getting some more slashers and um, I don't know if they'll be in the cinema, but we'll cross our fingers. But thank goodness those are coming around because man, these supernatural, you know, these ghost movies are just weighing me down, you guys. Like I think they're scary a lot of times. I mean, supernatural films get to me as Doc says, but I like other stuff. I like, you know, things more set that are more tangible in the real world. So anyways, that's just my two cents on that. But Eric, I'm really excited. Thanks for letting me know about that and um, looking forward to it. All right. And at this point in episode 32, we're about to wrap up. I wanted to tell the people who emailed. I had a bunch of emails here that I wanted to talk about as well. But as you can tell, it's not nearly as interesting or exciting to just listen to me respond to things because, um, you know, Doc and Josh are the brilliant ones on this podcast. And they always have lots of good insights, you know. So I'm going to save these emails, but I just want to thank the people who wrote in. And I'm not just saying that. I'm talking about Tim, the brand new listener. We had another Tim who's from Geneva, New York, who wrote in Dave from Melbourne, Australia. Give you props and shout out of David, of course, um, who wrote in Mark from Melbourne, Australia. We got a few people from Australia. Good day, mates. James from Michigan and uh, Adrian. Yeah, I mean, these, these are great emails. Thank you. I want to read these. I'd like to get back to covering more of the listener feedback, but uh, as you can probably tell, the time that Doc and Josh and I have together is so limited that we should just try to discuss the films in the meantime. So um, thanks for your patience with us, and please keep writing. I hope you don't take that as uh, they don't care or something, because we do care, and we love to hear from you. Now, at this point, I want to definitely recognize the iTunes reviews. We got two iTunes reviews, which mean a lot to us because it is the very best way you can help this podcast. The first review we got came from um, Dick Halloran, which (laughs) for those uh, horror fans who remember, I believe that is the um, African-American man in The Shining, at least in the movie. And he's the guy who taught the kid about The Shine, right? I believe that's Dick Halloran. Anyway, the title of this is Like Horror? This is a must. And we get five stars here. It says, I love horror movies. Love them to pieces ever since I was a kid. While it's great that there are so many out there to choose from, especially if you stream content, it's also difficult to get a recommendation on the good versus dreck from a reliable source. Since I've started listening to the horror movie podcast, I think I can declare this problem solved. The hosts, Jay of the Dead, Wolfman Josh, and Dr. Shock, have so much knowledge of not only the genre, but movies in general that's truly astounding. The reviews are spot on, and each host brings unique perspective and insight for each discussion. They give killer recommendations and inspire you to go back and revisit movies you've already seen. What more can you say? These guys do a great job, and I can't wait to hear more. If you love horror movies, you need to start listening now. Keep up the good work. So thanks a lot, Dick Halloran, for um, writing that awesome review. That's super nice what you said there. And then we got another one from um, Throwback22. And this is a huge compliment, this title. They called us the film spotting of horror movies. And for people who don't know, film spotting is one of the most, I guess, well-known, most popular, and it's been one of the most prolific uh, film podcasts out there. Those guys are very cerebral. They do a tremendous job, and that's a huge compliment for me to hear that. So thank you. Gives us five stars, and he said, if you've ever listened to Film Spotting, 
you'll know exactly what I mean. What film spotting does for movies in general, Horror Movie Podcast does specifically for horror films. This is the go-to podcast when you want to hear reviews and opinions on everything from blockbuster horror movies to indies and some movies that probably should never have been made. <laughs> Mutantis. I'm just kidding. My advice, keep the notepad app handy to jot down the movies that you've never heard of but are recommended here. You won't be disappointed. So thanks again, Throwback22. That is excellent to get those reviews from you guys and gals. I mean, that really helps us out a ton, and we sincerely appreciate it. And while we're thanking people, we also want to thank Juan for becoming a recurring donor here. Juan signed up on our PayPal link there to um, donate $2 a month to help the podcast. And of course, that definitely, that is very helpful. We also want to thank uh, his dinners in the oven for your donation. That is sincerely, it's just overwhelming. And we don't even know how to react to that except just to be grateful. So thank you. And I also want to thank James for purchasing our Cujo commentary. We recorded this commentary for Cujo a long time ago, a while back with our movie podcast weekly buddies over there and it's it's kind of funny it's kind of silly i i hope you weren't too disappointed in it so anyway thanks for getting that commentary just a quick little teaser here for what's coming up in horror movie podcast i'm assuming that we picked up a couple of new listeners thanks to the halloween coverage back in october and i hope that those listeners will stay with us and Just in case this episode right here is not to your liking, I just want to tell you a couple of little teasers that are coming up that will uh, maybe convince you to stick around. Later this month, right now it's November 2014, and in this month we're actually going to have Black Friday on November 28th. That's the day after Thanksgiving. And we are putting together a special bonus episode where we're going to be covering more or less like a consumerism-themed horror episode This was all Wolfman Josh's idea. I'll let him talk to you about it more in our next episode. Our next show comes out on uh, November 21st, and then you'll get shows three weeks in a row. So you'll get one on the 21st, on the 28th, on Black Friday, and then again on December 5th. And so that's pretty exciting, right? So we got some good content coming up for you. And then I just wanted to, this is something that I've been just so excited about. I'm actually like having a hard time containing it. So I just got to tell you right now, in the same way that we covered the Halloween franchise, like that Halloween extravaganza that we did. Well, in 2015, starting on February 13th, which is a Friday, so it's Friday the 13th. We're going to start covering the Friday the 13th franchise just as in-depth, just as hardcore, and just as seriously as we did the Halloween franchise. And that coverage is going to span between February 13th, and then it's going to come out each Friday until March 13th, which is a Friday. So from Friday the 13th in February to Friday the 13th in March. I'm sure you can see what we did there. Anyway, we have other things coming up too. We've got the big stuff planned out for 2015. I mean, of course, we're going to continue to bring you our bi-weekly coverage. A lot of those will be Frankensteinian episodes, and it is our goal to get more of the themed episodes in there, but we've also got some really big things like these two that I just mentioned here. So 
please stick around with Horror Movie Podcast. If you have not subscribed yet, please subscribe in iTunes. It's free. And if you leave us a review in iTunes, that is the best way you can support this podcast. Okay, well, that just about wraps up episode 32 of Horror Movie Podcast. We thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode. I gotta tell you guys genuinely, guys and gals, that you really show the love and support our show. You make it all worthwhile, and I'm not just saying that to be trite or anything. It means a lot. I mean, we hear from the listeners all the time that you're enjoying the show and that the episodes mean a lot to you, and it takes a lot of time on our part, so we're grateful to hear that it actually matters to people, and so we're going to keep on doing it. And we love your comments. Even though we don't get to cover comments as much as we wish we could, please continue to be involved in the Horror Movie Podcast community. As you can tell, we've got a great group of people that gather around this podcast and specifically gather around horror, and so you can leave a comment in the show notes or email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can call and leave us a voicemail, which is very fun. We love to get those. That number is 801-382-8789. You can find all our past episodes, all 32 of them, at horrormoviepodcast.com. And there you can also find our archives where you get the first incarnation of this show, which was called The Weekly Horror Movie Podcast. If you're new to this particular show that you're listening to now, definitely go back and listen to the weekly horror movie podcast. I mean, that's where it all began, and that show is hardcore. We have like five hosts that battle like crazy. It's not quite as gentlemanly or chivalrous as we have come to be, so it's just, I mean, it's bloody sometimes, let's be honest. And then the show that followed that was Horror Metropolis, which, you know, it was kind of like the transition point between that first show and what you're hearing now. So I'm proud of Horror Metropolis as well. So anyway, I love these podcasts. They're all my babies, basically. But anyway, you can subscribe free in iTunes if you like Horror Movie Podcasts, and you can follow us on Twitter at Horror Movie Cast. I want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for Horror Movie Podcasts theme song. You can find more of Fred's music at frederickingram.com. I'll have it linked in the show notes. Make sure you check out Dr. Shock's incredible blog at dvdinfatuation.com. It is amazing. And follow him on Twitter at dvdinfatuation. And Wolfman Josh, you can follow him on Twitter at Icarus Arts. And Josh and I have a regular movie podcast where we cover all genres every single Tuesday. So it's weekly and especially new releases that are in theaters. And that's called Movie Podcast Weekly. So you can check that out. And all that's going to be linked in our show notes here for episode 32. I've been doing a lot of guest appearances on other podcasts because my alter ego, Jay of the Dead, gets these very kind invitations. So I would consider it a personal favor to me if you'd go check out the following episodes. All of these will be linked in the show notes for this episode here. My guest appearance on Forgotten Flicks' Spooky Flicks Fest 2014 where I give you an in-depth review of Pet Cemetery from 1989. I'm really proud of the way this one turned out, so check it out. I also had a guest appearance on the Film Jive special number 17 called Soundtrack of Terror, where they invited nearly 20 film podcast co-hosts, bloggers, and authors of horror literature, including yours truly, 
to share their favorite horror music. And this is a very cool episode. I'm excited about the original horror song that I chose, but I do have to say one thing here. They opted to make a creative choice and ran some kind of audio effects over the commentary where it's filtered with this cassette scratched vinyl record type of sound. So my portion has a much different audio quality from what you're hearing now, but check it out. It's a good show with great content. I was also on the GeekCast Live podcast, episode 43, where I recommended a wide array of horror flicks to watch at Halloween time, and they were totally different picks from what I gave on this show. And last but not least, check out the Dead as Hell Horror podcast, where I helped One Sick Puppy and Shanny Dreadful review two 80s slasher flicks, Madman and The Prowler. So check them out. Help us spread the word about this podcast, and if you'd like to leave us a virtual tip, so to speak. We have PayPal buttons over on Movie Podcast Weekly, our sister site, and that goes to benefiting this show. Anyway, I think that's it for episode 32. Thank you for listening, and join us again in two weeks for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. Horror movies.